0: Of the Silmarillion film podcast, trying to clarify the podcast episode terminology that so That's frequently right. confuses our listeners and ourselves as and well.
1: Ourselves, yes.
0: <laughs> more, more likely, mostly just ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, I am your co-host Dave Kale, and I am joined as always by the Tolkien professor Cory Olson and the Tolkien Maven Trish Lambert, and. This is an exciting point in Season 3 of the Silmarillion Film Podcast mm-hmm. because we are doing that, that always hotly anticipated moment where we transition from overall season arc planning to outlining our specific episodes. And today we're doing the Rebellion of the Noldor.
1: That's right. This is
0: going to be a great one. Um, although ominously before we began recording, Corey, you hinted at, um, some potential theoretical problems. So.
1: Well, not problems exactly, but issues or, or m- that have arisen in thinking about episode, the episode. So yeah. So we we'll, there are some, some kind of bigger issues I want to, I guess sort of decisions that we need to make that are going to impact, um, uh, things that we do for a while, I think. Uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that soon. Um, but uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun so okay Welcome everybody. So before we get going, two quick announcements because we have uh, uh, two fun things coming up that I want to make sure that you know about. Thing number one, uh, and most urgently, this coming Monday, uh, uh, Signum University's fall classes begin. Uh, a bunch of people have signed up to uh to audit our new courses, which uh, should be really great. We're having a, a course on Norse myths. We're having a a, a new intro to Germanic philology. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity to take awesome courses that. Uh, Uh, you've always wanted to take and to learn stuff you've never had a chance to learn before. Uh, So I encourage you to go to signumuniversity.org and uh, check out our current courses uh, because uh, they're pretty awesome and it's almost time to start the semester. So that's number one. Number two, uh, in, on October 7th, we have our first regional conference in the Midwest. This is going to be happening in Iowa, uh, hosted by Hawkeye Community College. Uh, and we will have uh, our the registration form for that. should go up sometime this week on our website. Uh, but I just wanted to, to, to sort of uh, save the date. If you are anywhere in the Midwest, it's going to be a one-day conference just on uh, Saturday, October 7th. I'm going to be coming out and giving a talk, and there's going to be lots of other people uh, uh, giving presentations. Presentations, and we'll have lots of fun discussions and everything. So, a great opportunity. It's gonna, it costs almost nothing. It costs like fifteen bucks for the day. Um, so, uh, it, it's gonna be, you know, enormous fun, uh, high. High, high value fun uh, for that $15 for that day. Uh, And we've never done a regional conference out in the Midwest before. So, uh, you know, there'll be lots of people who will be uh, closer to this one than they've been to. You know, most, of course, uh, people have often complained uh, that all of our events are on the East Coast. And uh, and I know that uh, this isn't going to reach everybody, but we're really excited to start reaching out beyond the East Coast uh, and doing other events. So if you're anywhere yes, near Iowa... We, to get,
0: we to work on the West Coast one, too.
1: We are, yes. Yes, actually, discussion's underway for something in the San Diego, LA area uh, sometime next year. So yeah, yeah, we're working on that, too. And uh, I mean, Great. I can... Cannot... By
0: then I'll be done with my PhD and I'll actually be able to help.
1: There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Uh I would also hint that we are uh we are working on uh we are working on a Texas event. Texmoot is uh That's is definitely fight. gonna be happening this coming winter, probably uh January or maybe early February, probably January. Um so uh so yeah, so we're 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 excited to be branching out uh around the country here. And but this really one important
0: question is when is New Zealand mood?
1: New Zealand yeah, well, you know, uh not on the schedule yet, but we're uh <laughs> I would love to do an event down in uh New Zealand or Australia. Uh that would be really great. Um but uh, anyway, cool. So, just want, those are the two things that I wanted to make sure to mention, to everybody, before we begin. Now, uh, and thanks again, as always, to uh, Marie uh, for putting together our outlines and uh, giving us a bunch of feedback uh, from our discussion boards uh, for our discussion here today. So, first, we have the context of episode one, just to remember the things that we have been uh, ta- that we have already decided and been talking about. So, we're, the episode one is on the rebellion. Of the Noldor, um, and the centerpiece of that, of course, is the debate in the torchlit square in Tyrion. So, so lit by torches because, of course, the trees have just gone out, right? So there's no light in Valinor. Um, uh, Feanor is going to break his banishment, show up in Tyrion, give his big speech, swear his oath, uh, and the Noldor are going to set off. And the plan, of course, is to then do the kin slaying in the neck in the second episode. Uh, so. Um. Yeah. So. So that's that's the, the 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 focus for episode one. But there are a bunch of things that we need to be thinking about. Uh, one thing to just to to sort of recall. We don't need to discuss this because we've talked about it. But to remember, uh, in the frame of this episode, we have Aragorn wanting to leave uh, Rivendell. Um, uh, Gilryne not wanting him to go and Aragorn sneaking out. So, so we have the, uh, the, the rebellion of Aragorn, uh, going on, uh, in the frame of this episode, the villain storyline. Um, so Melkor returns to Angband. We need to, so one of the things we need to think about is how we integrate the villain storyline here. Um, when Melkor returns, we have him, uh, We need to begin the Melkor-Sauron-Gothmog dynamic there, right? We don't need to spend a whole lot of time necessarily, I think, on politics. That is, you know, we don't need a whole lot of backstage talk or, you know, know, off-in-the-wings talk between Sauron and his henchmen's complaining about stuff and that kind of thing. I, I think, you know, we don't need too much of that, but we do need to establish like the new normal uh, over there in uh, Th- in Thangarodrim. And Thangarodrim is also being erected at this point. Like we have Angband and he, Melkor, is going to come back to it. You know, so Morgoth returns and he is going to beef it up, right? You know, in the text, of course, it says that at this time he erects the three, the triple peaks, the mountains up above uh, Angband, which was largely subterranean. So do we you know so are are we going to are we going to have uh you know public works projects going on over there with the bad guys um but the villain storyline brings to mind one of my two big theoretical questions that dave was mentioning before and that question is you may remember that it's at this point in the text that we are told that really interesting. I want to, I want to, I want to read a little bit because, um, this is, this is a passage that is, um, really important in the Silmarillion as a whole and which, um, which would be really challenging to depict, but I feel like we have to kind of get at it some way. Um, For now, more than in the days of Otumno, ere his pride was humbled, his hatred devoured him, and in the domination of his servants, and the inspiring of them with lust of evil, he spent his spirit. Nonetheless, his majesty as one of the Valar long remained, though turned to terror, and before his face, all save the mightiest, sank into a dark pit of fear. The important sentence is how Morgoth's hatred devours him and how in the domination of his servants and inspiring of them with lust of evil, he spent his spirit. This idea, which is a crucial idea for Morgoth and for Sauron later, frankly, we see the same thing happening there. The idea that the evil guys invest their own power and thereby actually lessen themselves, like their own power, their own essence, decreases because dispersed uh, among their enemies. Um, Morgoth, in many ways, might seem idle, right? Like, why does he sit around in Angband and do nothing? In that same paragraph, or, or the paragraph before, was when we're told that he only ever bears weapons one more time in his entire life, and he almost never comes out of Angband. Um, so like, why not, why doesn't he lead his own armies in battle? Especially since, you know, he's like Avala and no elf can possibly stand against him. Right. Why doesn't he just, you know, get off his butt, pick up his sword and go out and fight himself. Right. When the answer is that's not what he does, but that doesn't mean he's being idle. Right. There's a real risk of having, of depicting Morgoth as just like sitting there and, And, uh, like letting other people who are less competent and less powerful than he do his work, right? Which seems sort of a strange thing, uh, to do, uh, arguably, right? And, and might create potentially a kind of, a a kind of a problem. So, um, yeah, Robert, exactly. It's the Morgoth's ring concept. So... So my question is, what do we do with this? Is there a way we can show this or represent it? Is this something that we have to make, I mean this 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 occasionally, I mean there are sometimes things which are sort of vague and invisible, right? Sort of spiritual things that are happening which sometimes you can effectively in a in a visual adaptation make into an outward thing right in order to point to the inward thing that's actually happening um so what do we do with this how so you, do we so how you do we mean, handle you it? mean
0: specifically is there a way to visually represent that his diminishing
1: well there's out? there are a couple elements of it right one is his diminishing two is uh-huh. i guess though to me the even bigger question is how do we convey that he's doing something cuz he is doing uh... something right what he's doing, you know. So, the question you don't,
0: think, you don't think it'll work to just you know show him shooting fireballs into things. Well, he
1: could shoot fireballs into. That's the thing. Like, the question is, why doesn't he shoot fireballs into things? Right? I mean. If you're Morgoth, wouldn't you shoot fireballs into things? I mean, I kind of feel like I would, but no, that's not what he does. But it's not because he doesn't do anything, right? And it's not because what he does is less effective than shooting fireballs into things. What he does is more effective than shooting fireballs into things. Um, But it's less easily represented on screen than shooting fireballs. Um, Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so Robert says, turning a beast into a monster... Um, yeah, so Robert, you're thinking of like examples that we can give to actually show him putting forth his power and, uh, uh, and investing creatures with, uh, with evil will. Now, we've shown monsters, right? We, we had a monster scene, uh, you know, like the Beasts of, of Horn, and, 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 and you'll remember that. We had a hunting scene, right, with, um, uh, with, with Orame and Tolkas in the previous season, season one, rather. Um, and we do have, uh, exactly, Nick, we do have a, his monster army, uh, in the final episode, the climactic battle, he's got his like monstrous forces. So we've seen him doing this kind of thing before, uh, and that's good. Um, but yeah, so, so Dave, it's really the two issues, right? One is again, do we show him being active? How do we convey that he is active despite the fact that he's staying home? right? Uh, And not intervening personally. And then second, can we and how do we show his own sort of diminishment? The diminishment is kind of a less urgent issue because the diminishment is over time and it doesn't have to be until I mean, I don't think we have to make an issue of that until later on. I would think that the first moment where we really want to depict the unexpected weakness of Melkor the fact that he has diminished to to some extent is in the duel with Fingolfin, right? Okay. Um, there we can show because you know he's going to get wounded, and that's a big deal. Um, that will never have happened before. Um, right. So we've got some time, you know, and that's going to be what? That's going to be the end of season four. So uh, so we have some time before we have to show him being weak. And we've got two seasons before any evidence of his uh, of his weakness needs to be in evidence. Um, so
0: I, I was going to, so I feel like the diminishment thing is, is not that hard, probably not that hard to do. Like, can, can't we kind of gradually change his physical appearance to make him start to look kind of withered and weak? Um, or witherder and weaker at least um yeah uh like like that and also as you say we can we can the duel will be the point to really drive that will be the opportunity to really drive that home to show him to show him being uh, you know um vulnerable you know still overpowering to engulfing but at least vulnerable enough that he gets hurt and he's afraid um so, so I don't know. Would you agree with that? That, that? that the diminishment thing actually maybe isn't isn't that tricky. We can we can do things visually that would that would work.
1: And 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 through dialogue, I mean, it can come up. Uh, <laughs> that's true.
0: You can just use exposition. Right. I am just dramatically
2: weaker now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, that's super compelling, isn't it? But I mean, it would be easy enough to have a conversation between like Sauron and one of his underlings, right? As mm. uh, you know, one of Sauron's advisors. Well, let's see. Thorin isn't going to be around that long. Drauglun is going to be around that long. Tevildo's probably not long. Who's he going to ha- He's not going to be able to keep anybody, is he? We've got... Uh, no. We've got... Yeah, he's going to be on his own after season five. Pretty much. Except so... for Shelob. Shelob will still be around. Uh, But she's never really an advisor, per se.
0: Preferably in in sexy, feminine, humanoid Hey,
1: that's a great idea! Yeah, let's give Shilab a sexy, female, human form. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Why didn't anybody ever think of that before? Yeah, where did that come from? I know. Um,
0: So, on the question of him exerting... So, is the idea here, the concern here... um, is the concern here that, that we want him to be – we want him to be – we want the audience to see him as formidable and dangerous and that we're not going to be able to do it by having him – like we're, we're – I think we're probably all in agreement that we're not going to pull a um, pull a, a, a Lord of the Rings Sauron where we have him marching around in a suit of armor at battles, um, knocking 50 people of a swing of right a mace. Right. Like we don't want to do that. We, we want to skew – we want to skew – more toward the books where where he he's more consistent, where he doesn't personally come out and right. fight that he does it by investing his power in, in servants and slaves. Um, is the concern that is the concern that that, that if we don't do this um, well, that that he that the audience will perceive him as cowardly and weak, and we don't want that. Is that kind of a concern? <laughs> yeah, That's I mean, just, I guess am just being devil's advocate. Like, right. why do we? Why are
1: we worried about this? Right, we were. Why, I guess, and maybe, maybe I'm worried about this too much. Maybe this won't come up. I mean, but I, the question is, it's hard for me to to, to not ask, why doesn't he? Or rather, I mean, if I were viewing this, like I'm, I, I agree, we don't want him out like Sauron in the in in the film, um, you know, clearing people out with his mace. But the question is, why Why wouldn't he? Like, why would he not do that? I mean, it's one thing to have him acting like the Godfather, right? To have him sitting in his inner sanctum and having his captains come to him and, uh, you know, and, and him giving orders and people kissing his ring and stuff. Like, having him in that kind of a Godfather commander role is fine. And goodness knows, I mean, I raised the Godfather not to make fun of it, but be- to point to it as actually a really good model, right? I mean, the Godfather is kind of like... the that Vito Corleone is kind of terrifying even though he doesn't do anything himself, right? And so having him in that role... Yeah, yeah,
0: I would agree, and, and I would argue that I don't think uh, The Godfather 2, where they show his backstory while interesting, does right. not, doesn't make him any scarier.
1: No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, but,
0: like, like, seeing him run around with a gun and shoot people doesn't actually necessarily increase his scariness. But, agreed.
1: Agreed. Oh. But, but, but here's the problem. Uh, or yeah. Imagine Vito Corleone is played... Uh, imagine somebody with the physique of Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Vito Corleone, right? Mm. The question that would constantly be happening is... Like, basically, if he were, literally, the biggest, strongest, most formidable person in his entire world... Right. In his entire. And yet all he did was sit in the back room and give orders. Like, I'm not saying that that wouldn't still be scary, but it would be it would be kind of it would be kind of like the gun on stage, you know, like, why doesn't he act, especially if he's losing right? especially if his enemies are, 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 you know, his armies are, are flailing and he's still sitting there. The question is like, well, so why are you not doing anything other than giving orders? Like, um, and 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 again, Tolkien has an answer to this. I'm not saying this is a problem uh, with with Tolkien's story. It's not, but the c- but because the answer is he is doing something, and he is doing something which is really more effective if he were just out there personally swatting flies. Like if he just picked up his, 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 his hammer and went out there and started pounding on people, he can only be in one place at once. Right. Whereas, you know, his armies and his lieutenants and, and his science experiments and everything else, um, you know, it's much better to invest himself in armies and armies of orcs than to just personally go out and fight one-on-one with lots of people in a row, right? Um, so, again, my point is not that there's a hole in the story. My, my question is, how can we depict that to... Sh- to, to convey both that he has that kind of Godfather role, that he is the terrifying commander, that even all of the most horrible uh, members of the of of the enemy armies are terrified of and submit to in fear. Fear again is the thing that in that paragraph Tolkien emphasizes that fear is the dominant motif of all of Angband. Everyone is terrified of Melkor. Um, but again. How do we show that he is doing something and not merely sitting idle when he could be out there? um, uh, When he could be out there doing something? Do you see what I mean?
0: Right. I see what you're saying. With with the Godfather, there's kind of no question of why isn't he out there doing because when we one one he doesn't look like the sort of person who would be able to do anything individually himself, and two. We never see him in a moment where he appears to be losing, and it seems like there's something he could have done about it.
1: Right. Um, right.
0: Whereas, um, whereas in the case of of, of Morgoth, it, there is sort of a the we'll, we'll have invested a great deal of effort in previous seasons to make it clear that he is the single most powerful figure yeah. within the Circle of Garda. and and there will be multiple moments throughout the series where he he will be losing. And and especially people who've seen Lord of the Rings in the past will wonder, like, oh, couldn't he have gotten out there? And in fact, don't they, <clears throat> don't they, don't they in the Lord of the Rings prologue, isn't there even specifically exposition that states that the the men and the elves were winning until Sauron took the yes. field himself?
1: Yes, yeah. and 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 yeah. and no one could possibly stand against him. Exactly, that's right. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and that's so that's. People- yeah.
0: people have that in their minds when they're watching um, Morgoth's armies lose um, to the Elves and Valerian. so yeah. okay yeah i see yeah <laughs> it could potentially be a little bit of a problem right but what, uh, what can we do that's not going to look hokey
1: <laughs> right exactly um so let's let's address the the harder question first which is assuming that we are going to... I mean, we we, we, we we are going to try to capture this idea of him um, putting forth his own power and, you know, sort of investing his minions with some of his power. Um, mm-hmm. Let's think first about how we tr- how we represent that. Um, the f- obvious opportunity we have here is with the uh, super-secret Necromantic Orc project. Right? Right. Um, especially given the fact that this is under new management. And we had already talked about how we wanted to, to to emphasize the new management here, right? We, how Sauron was, uh, was already working on the Elvish captives that, uh, he had taken and he was, uh, but he was wanting to make them into servants and followers, even disciples, right? He was he was trying to make disciples for himself and worshippers of Melkor. Um but he he was not interested in making mindless, hate filled slaves, right, who would leap mindlessly into battle uh, against their enemies. That hadn't necessarily been his vision for the elves, you know, for the the, the captive elves. Um, you know, we had we had mentioned before. I think the phrase we were using was something like he was trying to make converts, not uh, you know, to use them as sort of raw materials to create these these sort of new minions. Um, the orcs, therefore, when he comes and takes over the orc project, and he twists them into orcs, that is, I mean by the way, that is my understanding of how Tolkien saw that working. That, uh, is, I mean, even if you go way back to the book of lost tales days, when, when, uh, uh, m- when Morgoth is making the elves from scratch, um, hatred is still one of the, one of the, uh, prime ingredients. I mean, it's sort of the active ingredient in orcs, right? Is hatred. Um, and it's his own hatred, right? He is embodying his own hatred uh, in the orcs. And that is something that seems still to happen later on when they are uh, uh, when they are converted elves. And the only answer, it's not a fully satisfying answer, as Tolkien himself didn't find it fully satisfying, but the only answer to the question which is so often um, which is so often asked, um, namely, why do, do orcs have free will? Right. What happens to the free will of orcs? The answer, which again, as, as I said, uh, neither Tolkien nor I thinks it's a fully satisfactory answer, but the answer to that question is: it doesn't matter, because if they do have free will, their will is overridden by the will first of Morgoth and then of Sauron. Um. So they are they are corrupted. They are dominated. They are um. They are driven. To what they do. Um, now, again, that's not a fully satisfi- satisfactory answer, but nevertheless, that does seem to be the answer. That so, the orcs are the clearest instance of him putting out his uh, power of his, his investing some of what he has in his minions to make them stronger. Um,
0: so, so that's our that's kind of our first solution that we we have to we have to be very careful when putting the orc project on screen to really show sort of exactly how that's working and how he's pouring his power into those servants.
1: Yeah, I would say so because of the the the, the we have two obvi- the, the two most obvious opportunities we have for showing Melkor putting forth his spirit into his servants is the orcs and the dragons. Um, because Glaurung is not yet in uh, I mean At this point, he's not even really begun the R&D stage with Glaurung, the dragon. Um, In a sense, the monsters he's already created are kind of prototypes, right? Um, So we're going to need to be thinking about... Glaurung is really a season four... Question. Right. Obviously, we're not going to bring Glaurung in here. Um, he's going to appear in season four because he's going to be um, one of the chief instruments of the uh, Battle of Sudden Flame, with which we're going to end season four. And uh, there's that moment when he comes out and gets chased back by Fingon and his archers, uh, which can be an epi- a, a, a uh, um, an event from earlier in season four. So we can we can think about. The actual development and rationale of of Glaurung the Dragon near the beginning of season four. But my point is that's just sort of another obvious example of uh, uh, or a a moment when we can depict him uh, him doing this kind of thing. Um, See our season three opportunity is the orcs. So Dave, I guess we could just kind of leave it there and leave it for people to kind of discuss. uh, You know, we can leave it to the discussion board to 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 think about that a little bit more
0: maybe yeah i mean maybe very briefly we should very briefly let's comment on like sort of maybe even the visuals of it right like like this idea of like okay so we're going we're going to use the the super secret necromantic orc project as sort of our our device for sort of for um showing uh uh morgoth pouring his power into his servants um but but sort of um, you know, how 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 specifically do we communicate that? Is it mostly visuals, where we kind of have a scene where he's like staying there, kind of with his hands raised, and there's like you know some kind of light coming off his fingers going down into the little orc guys, right? Um, or or is it going to have to be exposition? Do we need to have like <laughs> do we need to have like Sauron spelling it out to somebody next to him? All right so so so
1: here's what's going on right. like, um, Saron <laughs> Sauron doing like, color commentary on the on the creation of the world. Yeah. Well but, it, it it wouldn't the, be it wouldn't be I that mean, big of a deal to have Sauron complaining about it, you know, to to some to like Thorin Gwethel, right? Because his boss has come in and taken over his project and taken it in a completely different direction, right? So Yeah.
0: No that's that is true. It would be I'm just thinking we could show this this notion of um, you can show this notion of Morgoth pouring power or whatever into his slaves, but um, th- but but that doesn't quite communicate the strategic value of doing this. Like I feel, I feel like that's a second point that, that right. maybe that's where that that might require some exposition. Someone actually explaining on screen, like, and why is this a good idea? Why can't he? You know, why would he want to? Um, um, you know, why would he want to diminish himself? Like right. pour out his own power into another, into other creatures. Um, you know, how is this going to help him? Wouldn't he? Wouldn't he want to to hoard his power? So somebody needs to like comment on, like, you no, know, oh no, this is he's empowering his armies to be able to um, sweep over Valerian or something like that.
1: Right, right. Yeah, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, it- on that
0: note, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Lord, uh, the Lord of the Rings films it's kind of just taken for granted. Like the, the ring really is kind of a MacGuffin in the films, maybe even in the books to an extent, <laughs> the ring, the ring really is kind of a MacGuffin in the sense that no one ever really explains why it is, you know, there's this line where all he needs, all he needs to, to cover the land in the second darkness is right. this ring. Right. No one ever explains like why or how does that work? Right. <laughs> like, right. Why is it that if Saruman gets this ring, he'll suddenly be able to spread chaos and darkness over the land. Um, Uh, So maybe, maybe we don't have to, like, I I would say I would definitely want to not over explain it, but, um, but maybe some kind of, some kind of, if we can find some way to write not corny dialogue between a couple of his lieutenants discussing it, that, that could be
1: useful and interesting. Or even as, uh, is suggesting here, um, even, uh, the idea of having somebody challenge him or question him, um, you know, maybe we actually have a a a, a discussion amongst um, you know Sauron and Morgoth uh, and Gothmog at some point to, to to sort of say like, hey, why aren't why are you like aren't you weakening yourself by doing this? That doesn't seem like a great idea. Or or even Gothmog asking sort of you know from his sort of thuggish perspective, why don't you come out into battle yourself and thump them right? Um, I could imagine Gothmog asking that question. Now if everyone's got to be terrified yeah. of him. So this conversation has to happen very carefully, but
0: what if we had a, a, a rebellious Balrog red shirt? <laughs> Makes make like a, 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 a intemperate comment about this. And <laughs> Bob Bob yeah. Right. And then what we see is, and then what we see is, um, we see uh, a, a, a gaggle of empowered orcs take him down, which is something that was maybe previously previously believed to be impossible. Where that, where, So we get a visual illustration of why would you do this, and then we see something happen, and we're like, oh,
1: okay,
0: <laughs> there you go. But yeah, that, that, I feel like that would potentially be more effective than, than dialogue or exposition.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that the Balrog in question... Uh, gets uh, uh, gets penalized by being locked up under mountains down in the south, um, but um,
0: well, maybe maybe he gets driven out by the orcs and then he flees there and hides.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, the other thing I was thinking of here too is remember we had talked about the character of Bulldog uh, and uh, you know who is like the great super orc uh, who is the, the 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 leader of the orcs. Um, and he might be an, an opportunity as well. Um, if we show Morgoth basically making Bulldog, I mean, he would be taking one of the elf prisoners in particular and not only twisting him into an orc, but promoting him into the, like, captain in general of the orcs. Um, and so, a uh, you know, a, a double or triple portion of the bit of his spirit that he puts into all of the orcs gets put into, into bulldog. Um, and that would, um, uh, that would be later on. So, oh yeah. So Marie just, uh, has kind of come in late. Hey Marie, glad you could make it. Um, I'm not saying we do bulldog in this episode, Marie. I've started with, uh, the, the-, the, the the theoretical question that thinking about the villain storyline, uh, 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 create, uh, generated. So we're thinking about the, 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 the general question. Um, yeah yeah um so anyway okay yeah we can uh we can keep thinking about this a little bit more I just wanted to raise the issue because I think it's a super important issue for us to be thinking about it was on my mind not only as I was thinking about the villain storyline but as I was reading the section on the flight of the Noldor rereading the flight of the Noldor chapter for today and of course this that that paragraph that I read earlier is uh, is in there uh, and so it was making me think of it um Uh, even more. But um, anyway, okay. All right. So uh, let's get to the second theoretical question raised by the one little last final tag that Murray put at the bottom of this slide, which is uh, uh, no Valar or Teleri in this episode. Interesting question. Okay. So this is my biggest question um, in the sense of having most overarching implications. How much do we want to leave the Valar behind now that it's come to to the point, right? And we're actually thinking about, we're actually thinking about, we've talked about this before, right? How the Valar are going to be of central importance in, in season one and two, and then they're going to kind of fade away. As of course, there's very little reference through most of the Silmarillion and almost all of the Lord of the Rings, um, you know, very little reference to the Valar and what the Valar are up to. You know, we don't get very much, meanwhile, back in Valinor, stuff going on. Do we want to? Let me put it this way. Maybe. I just want to throw out the possibility. Do we consider continu- like continuing with the Valar Obviously not having them be protagonists, right? But do we want to recall them? Do we want to be bringing them in? Do we want to get their reactions? Do we want to emphasize their the contributions that they are still making, even though they're not appearing in person? Um, we could possibly do that. Um,
2: I think we do need to find a way to do that, because, I mean... Even though they're not mentioned, if I recall correctly from the letters, I mean, Tolkien was pretty blunt about the fact that, you know, they were still active. They were still doing things. I mean, we know they are, right? Went from the West when Saruman spirit goes and uh, and other things. So so there's two things. One is if we're going to take them away, we can't go – we shouldn't go cold turkey. We need to somehow phase them out. But I do think more importantly what you just said – somehow we need to find a way to keep them still engaged in the story because they do have, Yes, they do, they do take action even though it's off stage in the book and movie.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Especially I exactly, I, I agree with Marielle that we don't want to, we don't want to be depicting like, as she says, the valley and water cooler. Uh, you know right we don 't we, we, we don't want to just occasionally go back to have a few of them hanging out being like, "Dude, have you seen what Turin has done this time? I mean, can you believe that guy? We, you know what should we so yeah, I mean, just having them kind of standing around and commenting, obviously we don 't necessarily want that, but there are moments, and there certainly will be moments when we 're going to have direct or even indirect intervention, just showing them taking an interest and then leaving it to the viewer to sort of speculate about what role the Valar might have played in, in these particular episodes. But do, to, to Do
2: we know for certain that the Valar did not come to Middle-earth even in disgu- disguise, if you will, covertly? I mean, I know like, uh, oh my God, I can't believe, Olmo, of course, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hangs out at the shore. <laughs> um, you know, but do we know that they didn't? I mean, would that be a horrible, you know, transgression on our part if we wove them in by having them actually witnessing certain things? I don't know. That might be kind of schlocky, but
1: well, I mean, is there a reason? I mean, is there a very definite reason why we would say they couldn't? They would never. No, I mean, I don't think that I'm we wondering. do have a real, a real. Yeah. A real uh, mandate against that necessarily
2: of course you know who could actually be the conduit to val uh, to valinor is tom bombadil um there you go <laughs> you know <laughs> you know he's like the eyes and ears yeah, that's,
1: that's, that's, tom bombadil's spy master. i just i'm not he's deep go. he's deep that's undercover right. man he is he is deep undercover um yeah. 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 Well, exactly. As uh, Tony Mead was reminding us, it's 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 like the theory that Gandalf is actually Manway, Right. Um, right. The fact that, well, that I mean,
2: there's been theories, haven't there, that Tom Bombadil and Goldberry are Yavanna and Aule, I think it was.
1: Well, sure. I mean, that's that's a <clears throat> that, that's a very natural kind of theory to have. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's true, but um, but but certainly. um.
2: Well, I think Alley would have had to change quite a bit to be worrying about you know <laughs> birds and badgers. But okay,
1: yeah, he's not—he's not very much like Alley. Uh, I have to say, no. apart from, <laughs> apart from, apart from his choice in 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 wives. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, Halstein, I'm thinking the same thing. Even just the idea of uh, of uh, actually a. A verse transcript of one of Tom Bombadil's intelligence reports, uh, you know, in his normal meter and style would be awesome, right? I mean, like, th- we can't do this, but that has to happen, right? We, th- that needs to exist. We need to have, like, the the intelligence report of Tom Bombadil spy, uh, right? Right. In hey doll, Mary doll, exactly in trochaic <laughs> heptameter, you know, with lots of ring a dong dillos, you know, interspersed <laughs> at certain you, points.
2: Manway gets it, he, he just looks over at Bard. I just
1: his eyes. <laughs> this, this would be great, yeah. Who no, this guy, yeah, okay, this guy. <laughs> that needs to happen. That needs to, right. That would get
2: great brothers, brotherhood, brothers workshop, brotherhood workshop. Yeah. Oh yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So I, 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 um, we can, in a sense, season three gives us an opportunity to break in gently to this question because, It's very clear, like the Valar have to be involved in season three. Like there's no question about that. We are told, even when they are doing nothing, we are told that they are deliberately, they have deliberately chosen to do nothing, right? So the actions of the Valar, um, they're involved literally from the beginning to the end of this season. Um, They're involved in choosing to let Feanor do his thing, though they they send the Herald to banish. Feanor. Then we've got the don't stop them from leaving, but uh uh, uh but um what's her name? Um uh uh Unin. See this is again a, a problem with studying the book of the history of Middle Earth too closely. I was like, Owen, no, what's her name? Uinen. yes. Um but um uh, so you know, and, and her going ahead and like creating the storm and wrecking the ships anyway. We've got then, of course, the debate, the council that that uh, you know th- their actual discussion, which we get the uh, uh, the and yet remain evil conversation. We get, of course, Mando's going to deliver the doom of the Noldor, and then even at the very end of the uh, of the season, when uh, um, you know, Manway needs to be hearing this supplicate, I mean I know we're not gonna get the rescue of Mythros in this at the end of the of this season, but still remember the the prayer that Finway that Fingen rather offers up to Manway uh and the the, the the eagle that's sent to him. So again, Manway's paying attention, right? And and we, we know that Manway's paying attention. So um I think we certainly have the thou we're going to have them in the background, but we'll have an opportunity in season three to kind of play with this a little bit. Um, Interspersing conversation uh, among the Valar. Um, And frankly, I think this needs to happen in episode one. Um, The question of, or, you know, maybe we could push it off till the beginning of episode two, but that decision, you know, Manwe's choice to not intervene. Right to uh, uh, to to allow the Noldor to make their own choice and leave, despite the fact that many of the of the Valar are really upset with them and feel aggrieved at what Feanor is saying. They're all they all it's like they they all can hear what Feanor says. I mean, they object to the words that he uses. It's it's nothing that goes on in Tyrion is secret from the Valar, apparently. Um, but uh, anyway, so. It's uh um, whether we work it into episode one as I say, or start episode two with it, the fact that the Valor know what's going on and the dis- the, the debate that they have about how they should respond um, or not respond to those events we we need to do that. I mean, I think that that absolutely has to happen. We don't necessarily have to depict it all on st- on screen, but we should think about it. And again, it gives us an opportunity, I think, through this season uh to be thinking about some kind of models that we might use or not use uh for uh for later on as we move forward, but uh but wanted to raise that in general, I am pro showing more uh Valian intervention uh in middle earth because i do think that it does happen um and i think that we can show that without being hokey um we have to be careful about that but i do think that we can that we can show that okay um well with that in mind maria i'm sure yes uh, i'm gonna say
0: i personally i think uh think uh showing the valor intervening is an excellent opportunity for like a for like a a, a musical number in every episode uh, <laughs> where almo is is uh you know, playing some song for the elves
1: <laughs> a musical number yeah yeah, yeah. that's um it's a good plan dave it's a great plan
0: <laughs> well that's why i'm here
1: Okay. All right. Well, let's think about the actual plot of the episode then, having addressed my larger theoretical concerns here. Um, so there were a few suggestions uh, from the discussion board. One was to begin in Angband, uh, since this will tie into both Noldor and Beleriand. Um, now, I would uh, I would say, actually, I kind of like that idea. I would recall especially that we end with that too, right? Um, establishing... Morgoth on the throne uh, in Angband is one of the final images of the uh, climax, you know, of the, not the climax, but of the, the, the culmination of season two. Uh, so starting there would not be crazy. Um, uh, we have uh, the other suggestions to begin with Finway's funeral procession uh, from Formanos. Um which raises a really interesting question because, uh, as I know the discussion boards were very interested in this week, um, funerals. There's not a whole lot of precedent for funerals. Uh, in, uh, in fact, really it's kind of Finway and Finway's wife, right? There's like what, two (laughs) people now who have died. Um, And this will be really the first one that we show, Marie, yeah. So um, it's not like they have funerary customs, exactly. Because you think, I mean, even back in Queen right, there were some folks who vanished, right, who were were abducted. Um, But did anybody else die? I mean, I don't think we would have had any other fatalities. You know, there would have been... um, Some probably who died on the road across Middle-earth. But even there, I would not think that the casualty rate would be exceptionally high among the elves crossing Middle-earth. So they can be killed, but for many, most, this is going to be really their first. I mean, so, you know, uh, Muriel has died. You know, that's that's the, the only death so far.
0: Um, and, and I kind of wonder, I, I sort of feel like, I certainly feel like, like I, 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 like on the one hand, visually starting with the funeral would be, would be kind of look nice and it would right. be moving, right. uh, emotionally. On the other hand, I feel like maybe that portrays the nature of the elves. Like it, it would, if we just started with the funeral, it would make it seem like this is a common, like this is a routine. Right. This is a commonplace ritual that they right. have. And
1: right.
0: Which I, I, I kind of like, I'm leaning toward more like showing maybe some consternation about exactly what to do.
1: Yes, yes. Because they they obviously don't have traditions. And what would... What would the elves do with the body? Would they bury it? Would they erect a tombstone? Would there be a memorial? See,
0: those are human things. Because those are things that, that a lot of those things, like burying or whatever, like, those have like a very specific purpose in our world, right? Right.
1: Well, and yeah,
0: like they like even have a notion of decay. Do you? Do dead bodies decay in um, across the sea?
1: Right. Do dead do elves who die in Valinor decay? Now, there's yeah. a question I've never asked myself. Um,
0: <laughs> We're asking all the the really.
1: The really difficult question. Golly, that are. is an interesting really question. Yeah. Now, Marie points out that Mur- Muriel's body doesn't decay. Right? But, of course, as Hakan was, was was pointing out, of course, you know, which which I hadn't been emphasizing. But, yeah, Muriel's Muriel didn't exactly die in a normal way anyway. Um, her body's oh, not like – her body isn't like 100% dead. It's just that her spirit's gone. Um, right. So it's more like, you know, Muriel is in an immortal vegetative state. <laughs> essentially. <Yeah. laughs> you know. Um but
0: so actually that's so it's not even like we have a it's not even like we have an on screen precedent of no oh, well someone died before so they figured it out then because that's a completely weird one off.
1: Yeah. So I mean, Finway will be the first corpse, like the first legitimate right. corpse uh, in the history of Valinor. And <laughs> What a what a auspicious honor.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Now yeah. also, First, you know, I'm thinking that's, I that's don't know how <laughs> I don't know how significant this would be, so it may not be all that significant. But it would be interesting to see however it is they create this funeral for Fenway, it's it's something that the Noldor take with them to Middle earth and it then gets passed to other elf cultures. So even in season Tw- even when we're in like the third age, during the wars with Sauron, we still see whatever this funeral.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's be. why this is a big deal, right? Because it's yeah. it, this is the first elf corpse, but this is not the last elf corpse, right? No, <laughs> by by, <a laughs> by Lushar, no, no, no means. And so we are going to need and but. So it does, bear, uh, it does bear some interesting thinking because, as, as we've said before, one of the really interesting challenges of trying to depict Tolkien's elves um, is thinking about, is not just projecting onto them human conventions. Um, and, you know, any time we just kind of defer to the way that people in cultures with which we're familiar normally do things, it's kind of a cop-out, right? How would an immortal creature... How would an immortal bound, you know, they, they know, right? The elves are not leaving Arda. Um, Finway's spirit has not left Arda, even though, you know, he has gone to Mandos and they won't see him for a long time. He's not gone. And more importantly, like his body. I'm inclined to think and tell me what you guys think about this, but I'm inclined to think that the elves would kind of care less about the body than humans do. Don't you think? Because mm-hmm. I mean, the hroa—like, how important is that, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's—it's not—it's not that they would treat it with disrespect or something, or just like you know, dump it in the compost heap in the backyard. But <laughs> at the same time, the elves would be much more aware than humans are that the body is the body is a vessel, and eventually a new vessel will be made for that spirit which hasn't departed from Arda. It's just right. in Mandos for a while. So, this is why I don't think there would be any, like, tombstones, or even if there's a burial. I mean, they've got to do something with the corpse, right? Uh, but if, even if there's a burial or something, there would not be like a monument? Because a or monument maybe would Would they they burn the body i don't know
0: here's a quick question are they cognizant of the fact that they could go down to the halls of mandos and just say hello to a dead (laughs) elf
1: are there visiting hours and i don't think there are visiting hours in mandos i
2: think we talked about that didn't we we earlier on we said no there wouldn't be there'd be like a separation of spirit from corporeal yeah yeah Um, but are how about they... if Olmo takes him how about if Olmo takes him and it's just a mysterious thing I mean it's like you know I mean are, the are implication they... being he's going to be have a sea burial
0: are they aware of the fact that the dead elves are going down into Halls of Mandos well
1: that's a great question and Tony Mead was mm. just asking that same question how do they know um, would the Valar okay. tell them and when did the Valar tell them and goodness knows they've no one's been told on screen yet so our viewers aren't going to know Um, So,
0: so that's a good point, but I do like, I now feel like in thinking about it, I feel, I feel a pretty strong conviction that they would know that they do know somehow, however, however we choose to, to handle that on screen, I feel like they should know and do know just for the, just because of the simple fact that they draw a direct comparison with the men. Like the fact that the fact that it's such a, such a contentious point with men, you know, this idea that like. You yes. Die and you go no, not wither. And, yes, and there's you know repeated discussions about we don't know what your fate is. It's apart from ours. Blah blah blah. So I feel like the elves should know,
1: and the significance and, of grandiose tombs for the Numenorians and the Gondorians yeah. as well. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. So I feel like I feel like specifically we should contrast. Yes, we should contrast the elves with the men, which suggests that that we should do. Which suggests that yeah, that we should definitely do the opposite of what happens with the new minorities um, and i kind of feel like i sort of and i feel like if they know like well sure he's dead he's not really dead he's still here he's down in the halls of mandos and blah blah blah, blah and he could come back i kind of feel like i feel like i sort of agree with you corey that that there wouldn't really be much concern about the body um uh, that there wouldn't be things like, you know, the, why would yeah. you put up a memorial or a marker? Right. No. to No. Someone who's not gone right. they've just, they've just gone someplace else.
1: Right. right. Clearly not a memorial, right? I mean, because a memorial is to memorialize someone who's gone and he's not gone, right? I mean, that's, in fact, I would think that the whole like, memorial slash mausoleum culture of Numenor would be not only repugnant uh, to the elves, but completely like, puzzling. I mean, it would just look supremely weird to them that you would erect monuments to dead people. Like, why on earth would you erect monuments to dead people? Um, To an elf, that would be nonsensical, I think. Um, Yeah, I agree. Okay. And now Nick reminds us that we did have a little bit of a conversation uh, when Muriel died about Mando okay. saying that she's not coming back. And I agree, Nick. But my problem, Nick, is that Muriel is such a weird case. I mean, she she's not like the prototype of Elvish Death. Um, and having, of course, having that happen with her first creates the possibility that in our viewer's mind, she becomes the prototype of Elvish Death. And they think that all the elves are off there and, in, and their bodies are in an eternal vegetative state in Lorien, uh, which is not the case. Um, could Mandos take the body away? I mean, we could just put some mystery... Over it, like they don't know what happens to the body. But it's not like Mando's is going to come to, or you know, Mando's or his servants are going to come trucking all the way to the battlefields of Middle Earth to haul off the bodies. So we still have to have the elves dispose of the bodies in some way or other, eventually. Uh, so we might as well not, uh, not uh, dodge the question now. Um... I mean I'm I'm
0: I don't, yeah. That's a good question. Well, I, we could have them treat it differently in Valinor. Like, I, I could kind of see how 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 um, the Valar might might not want to just you know like they, it might seem kind of weird to just leave the leave um, anybody's dead body lying around for all to see. Yeah, and see why maybe they might come get it. But I, I I but I don't I don't know if I I'm not sure I want to make it like a, a true mystery where the elves are like. Well, oh, when somebody dies, so and so comes and takes their body, and blah. blah. Right. Like, for one thing, I don't think we want to turn the the, the uh, valor into like grim reaper figures. Right, but um, but I also feel like that might contradict the notion that the elves have a, you know, uh, like they know they know what happens. They have a pretty strong conviction. Um,
1: Remember, we do get funeral. How we- much
2: of the episode? Oh,
1: sorry, Go ahead. I was going to say we do get funeral mounds. Um, Fingolfin and um, Finrod both are buried in mounds. Um,
0: Maybe something different. Maybe they handle it differently in Middle Earth versus Valinor.
1: Right. It could be, but but then what do we do with them in Valinor?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so what's a what's a reason to have? what's a reason to have a, 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 a funeral mound or something like that in Middle-earth versus Valinor? Well... Uh, protect the body from desecration? Yes,
1: that's explicitly the reason in Middle-earth. Um, yeah. Remember also, in the case of Finrod, right, how the burial of his body on the island um, basically cleanses it, right? That was his... Stronghold, which Sauron had taken uh, and made foul, right? And the island is sort of cleansed by his, uh, his sort of barrow at the top. Um, so. Could
2: the Valar get involved? I mean, in the Valinor version, could Valinor, could the Valinor, <laughs> Valar get involved? I mean, I was thinking like, for example, Yavanna or, 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 Oh my god, I can't remember I can't believe I can't remember people's names. Nienna could like yes. sit vigil over the body or something and then it's sort of like they I don't know. I mean I was just thinking that somehow, you know, in other words it's it's like a return of the body to, to Arda
1: somehow. Right, right. I don't want it
2: to be like, you know, a right. fast frame of the body decomposing. Right. But
1: we could, have a, know, something yeah. like that. we could have a burial site of some kind on Tiniquatil, the holy mountain, which would be kind of cool, ah. but I'm not sure that isn't making too much of it again. Like, but what about
2: Tyrion? I mean, actually, it would make more sense, wouldn't it, to have it on Tyrion? Somewhere?
1: But then they'd have to have a tomb, wouldn't they? I mean, wouldn't they have to yeah. build something yeah. then?
2: Well, see, now I'm back to my suggestion that Olmo takes him. You know that basically the implication is he is going to be returned to Arda, but it'll be a sea burial, a sea which burial. would also then you know have them make have to come up with a different thing to do in Middle Earth, hence the mounds, because Olmo isn't exactly going to come you know inland to gather bodies up. So I don't know. I mean, that's another possibility. But as you can tell, my theme is around, like you said, it's a vessel. So the logical thing is it would get returned to Arda, you know, in other words, it gets recycled, if you will. Exactly. Um,
1: Exactly. And so so definitely on the recycling front, the more I've thought about it, elvish bodies have to decay. I mean, they have to decay Um, because even in Valinor, they have to decay because Finway is eventually going to want a new body. Right. He's going to eventually create it. It's not like he's going to return to the old one. I mean, his head got bashed in. Right. So we're not going to have them like, let's repair the mechanical damage to the corpse of Finway so that his spirit can re-inhabit it at some point, uh, you know, a couple millennia down the road. Like that's no that we're not going to have like a, you know, a reconstructing surgery business with right. that. So, yeah, I, I don't. I, and and. uh yeah. No. So that can't happen. So the, so the bodies decay, and as you say, it's a recycling thing, right? Like the, their flesh right. is from, is made of the stuff of Arda, and goes back to the stuff of Arda. Right. Their spirits don't leave Arda. I mean, to
2: me, that's a, that would be especially applicable to the elves. Sure. I mean, you know, in yeah, a, in a like, given their tie to the Arda, right, um, right, and the fact that I think, as you say, and I think, I think it would be easy to make clear that the elves don't consider the body of anything of much import in the sense of, you know, I mean, it
1: is just a vessel. Maybe we just have something like not associated with any other thing, like not on Nick, just like a, like a field where the elves are, but like, you know, the field of, they would name it something, right. I mean, it would, it would be called something like the, you know, the field of, uh, what would they call it? Not the, they wouldn't call it the field of death. They wouldn't call it the field of the, um, but you know, it's like, the field of renewal, or well, no, because that suggests that new Wife comes from there, but
2: oh, uh,
1: true. but like that, well, what could we,
2: be just a big blue container? To
1: big f- <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sorry, <laughs> right? The, the elvish recycle bin, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The know, field the old, of remembrance, with a triangle well, see, on the see. But, no, but see, Tony, remembrance is exactly what they would not be associating with corpses. Right. That's one of the chief differences, right? Because right? for humans, it's all about the memory. Like, we have to keep alive the memory of, of the one who is gone. But the whole premise of that is that they're gone, right? It's, right. The, it's, it's the departure in, what about like... the field
2: of reverence? What about the field of reverence? You know, they revere the vessel that the spirit was in. And that's, you know... So they it's reverence, but it's not like... They know that the... Spirits not gone;
1: they also not gone. Right,
2: right.
1: Something like that. No? Well, though that would imply that they're like revering the dead or the bodies of the dead, which is which. Mm. I mean, which I mean, you know, which is which gets a little close to ancestor worship, or you know, like that kind of
0: area. Yeah. Hey, uh, are we? Um, so, so are we saying that we would? Do we think we were treating Benway differently from Muriel? Because I, I pulled out my, I went back to the, the Unchaining of Melkor chapter, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and here's what it says. It says, uh, uh, she, Muriel, went to the gardens of Lorien, lay down to sleep, but though she seemed to sleep, her spirit indeed departed from her body and passed in the silence in the halls of Mandos. The maidens of Esti tended the body of Muriel, and it remained unwithered. Yes. She did not return. So, yes. is, is the, so so what, do, what should we take from that? Do we take from that that no elves' bodies do not decay? Do we take from that Muriel's different? Or do we take from that that she remained unwithered because the maidens of Estae tended her?
1: But they can't be bothered to tend everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. this, well, the the workload see, of the simple. maidens of Estae is just too high to deal with every single elvish corpse that comes along. Yeah,
0: Because there's so many. Um, right. Well, I do wonder. So, so several people made the point in the comments, which, which maybe this is this is this addresses this a little bit. Do we, re- you know, suppose the valar showed up and said, "All right, well, the the you know, bring out your dead. Like, um, um, get, let's have your <laughs> let's have your dead body. We're going to take him over <laughs> to the main vestige. You
1: oh, know, or
0: maybe might be reluctant to give him up, and it could be. You know, in, in several several folks, Nick Nick asked the question, do we really think Feanor wouldn't want a memorial to his father? And it's sort of, on the one hand, I'm kind of reluctant to do that because I really do want to show the elves treating death differently. But maybe this could be a sign of Feanor's corruption, that he kind of responds responds inappropriately to death. He He refuses to give up the body. He insists on some right. kind of burial. He insists on a monument, something that kind of, Draws a connection between him and what we'll see with the the Numenorians later.
1: Right, right. Well, <clears throat> I agree that there should be issues. We know he has Valar issues, right? And so mm-hmm. the idea of the and this was something somebody I forget who it was had mentioned um, a while ago, uh, which is that if the Valar did want to come in, and if you know, if the Valar have some role in the uh, the funerary customs of elves, Feanor is going to object, right? I mean, we know that Feanor, is, whatever is the ultimate fate of the corpse of Finwë, Feanor is going to personally oversee it, right? I mean, there's no question about that. Um, and he is probably going to take umbrage if uh, the Valar come in and be like, hey, we're going to dispose of the body of your father. I don't think he's going to have any of that. Um so we have to make the decision if we want the, the burial of Finway to be suggesting essentially kind of normal Elvish practice or setting a precedent for what will become normal Elvish practice, then we can't have Feanor get weird about it or get too weird about it. I like the idea oh. of showing his I mean, Dave, I I do think that that impulse to, to sort of show Feanor's corruption through this is a good one. But I'm not sure that I want that particular kind. That, because it's, that's a human... What happens with the Numenorians, that's a human thing. And I don't know that... See, like, my answer to the question, can we really believe that Feanor would not want a memorial to his father, is yes, I can believe that. Because the memorial impulse is a fundamentally human impulse. If he understands, if Feanor understands that his father is not gone... But his father is in Mando's. His father's spirit is in Mando's. Um, he's not going to be. He's the impulse is not going to be to memorialize him to to raise a a, a, a a monument, you know, remembering the life of Finway. Finway is still alive in Mando's. Um, his flesh is is you know his his froa is inactive but his spirit is still alive and it's still not far away and he knows this um he is separated from it if anything what i can see is that grievance i could see him getting ticked off at mando's and being like hey i want to see dad and mando's being like no you can't do that and him being like i don't care i want to see dad you know so like him grudging at the fact that he's separated from them would seem to be uh uh, would seem yeah. to be. And Phil, I agree with you. Phil Boswell says they'd be remembering his murder, not just his death or commemorating his life. I agree. But that's what the oath and the pursuit of Morgoth is about, right? They're, they're memorializing the murder of Finway by swearing vengeance on his murderer, right? So we're good on that score. Um... Yeah. And um, So here's one
0: thing. I don't, I'm not sure necessarily we need to use Fanor and um, response to Finway's death to establish standard practice or precedent for elves in general. Mm-hmm. But what it could do is establish um, precedent and standard practice for elves, or at least the Noldor in Middle-earth. And maybe maybe the behavior and practices of the elves in Middle-earth is a departure from from sort of what the what the kind of accepted practice in Valinor is. So maybe the, the standard practice in Valinor is something that looks more like what happened with Muriel. Of course, you know, does anyone, a, after the, the Noldor leave, um, does anyone, after, you know, after they finish slaughtering their kin, um, does anyone die of again? Does there even
2: need to be a standard practice?
1: That's true. After the kinslaying, there's going to be a whole lot of work demand on the maidens of Estë, right? I mean, they, they, but, right. But,
0: but I think, um, but I think, but I think, certainly there's going to be there certainly needs to be some kind of standard practice for elves in Middle Earth because they will be suffering and dying. Um, right. So, so maybe maybe that's maybe we don't have to make an overarching decision for elves in general, but we make a decision for for elves and specifically for the Noldor, um, who we already know to be kind of somewhat you know set apart, like non-compliant. Maybe they have their own set of customs that that the fact that those customs differ from kind of what the right thing to do or the standard thing to do for elves is, if it's different, that's okay. Because, because we already know they're, I mean, they're already doing lots of things differently. They're um, defying the Valar, they're slaughtering yeah. their kin, yeah. um, they're yeah. going to war, they're making weapons, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But definitely they have to do like, it's on the one hand, on the one hand, it seems weird if you had like a fully constructed funeral, rite Yes. In Valinor. Yes. On the other hand, it's going to seem really weird if they don't have one over the next ten seasons in Middle-earth,
1: right? Right. Like, it's going to be really weird. Yeah, yeah. No, clearly rituals will grow up. Um, In fact, you know, we have an opportunity for that, for thinking about that, after the crossing of the Helcaraxia.
0: Yes, yes, I was just thinking that. What are they going to do with all the people that die along the way there?
1: Yeah. At the very least they're going to they they have to have some kind of ritual to 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 you know, yeah, to kind of, uh, to what? Commemorate the 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 death. I I, yeah, I don't know. We're going to have to think about that a little bit more uh, at that point, but um And yes, we can have different funerary uh, uh, traditions among, like, to show the Teleri dealing with the bodies of their dead after the kinslaying. Um, uh, But Dave, you know, you're so right. It's one of those things that that you just, like, don't necessarily think about. I can't imagine that many elves in Valinor die from misadventure, right? I mean, just like somebody f-
0: household accident
1: <laughs> exactly you know somebody somebody fell off the third story balcony and broke his neck you know uh, somebody got liquored up and tumbled down the stairs again you know like that kind of thing I can't imagine that happens a whole lot you know like a tragic boating accident in the harbor and two people dismembered it. Uh, you know I can't imagine that that's a major issue in Valinor right so you're right I mean I I don't think I'd ever thought about that fact but you're completely right, it seems totally plausible to imagine that the kinslaying represents like, the entire corpse count. When we talk about how are elves buried in Valinor, the answer is they're not, right? The total corpse count in Valinor is the victims of the kinslaying plus Finway, right? I mean, is there a reason to think it's more than that? Um, no. So, yeah, I, I, I uh, there's not even a... The, so the, we don't even need a Valinorian ritual because there wouldn't be one. There would be a response to the Kinslaying, right? Um, and there would, and just as there's a response here to Finway's death, but um, but it wouldn't even be, like, it's not even a precedent for anything, <laughs> right? Because there wouldn't be any other instances, again, other than the major event of the Kinslaying. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's conceivable, but, yeah, I just really would not think that a lot of elves in Valinor would die of, like, traffic accidents and, you know, uh, uh, eating bad shellfish or something like that, right? I mean, it's just, that can't be. Um, Yeah. And I think that Feanor's issues. I agree with people who are saying that Feanor, like, we this is an opportunity to show Feanor, uh kind of unhinged, uh, and that it's okay for his uh, for his reaction to be kind of unelvish and, n- un, you know, abnormal because because we were showing that he's unhinged. Sure, I agree with that, but again, it's like unhinged in what way? I think that Feanor's unhingedness shows itself in like. Monomaniacal, uh, you know, oaths of vengeance essentially, like the, He is gonna show how we would. Sh- I, my, 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 my vote for Feanor's being imbalanced in the general sort of funerary arrangements of his father would be to show him, um, raging at the Valar, basically. Like, I, I. I could see him walking up to the doors of Mandos and demanding to see his dad sooner than I could imagine him like building a monument in memorial of his father because he knows like his dad's right over there right he he should be able to visit us you know like so yeah so him him going to Mandos and saying what aren't there any visiting hours around here um is uh um that I, that's got to be right. That's got to be how crazy Fanor is. Uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, is would would handle it right? It's got to be. Well, I think with Finway, in particular, it's made easier by the fact that Muriel's body is still around, and we know where it is. Right? It's in Loria. So, in some sense, him being br- so his body should be brought to Lorien, right? Even Feanor would want to bring his body to Lorien and lay it next to the body of his mother, wouldn't he? Isn't that what Feanor yeah. would want to do?
0: Yeah, you would think so. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah.
1: I mean, even, and 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 then we have, and I love the idea of Indus's final attempt to reach out to Feanor, and that would be the moment, right? Um, and of course, Feanor is going to be unreceptive to Indus's uh, advances of kindness. Um. um yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick is saying that <clears throat> Fingolfin and Finarfin would probably not be enormously happy with that. Um, hey. Is there any chance? Just just
0: tossing this out there. Is there any chance that the elves of Middle Earth learn funeral rites from men, or that or that that their interactions with men that uh, you know they observe these? I mean, I don't. I'm not. This seems weird because a yeah. lot of elves yeah. are going to die before men ever show up. Right. But like, but like when you kind of when you start digging through when you start digging through the Silmarillion kind of looking like, looking like I'm, 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 I won't explain where I got this from, but I'm looking at an electronic version of the Silmarillion and I'm kind of just skimming through
1: yeah,
0: and looking for identifying yeah. locations where I know people died and I recall them being buried in some way.
1: Right. And a lot yeah. of
0: them occur in stories that, uh, uh, involving men, There's Spindulus right. who gets buried, yeah. um, during inter- you know she's not buried by Turin, but she's buried buried by men. Yeah. Men, have, men yeah. have been around for a while. Finrod gets buried, um, but there doesn't seem to be. I guess I need to go and look and see what happens. What do they ever explain? What how you know like like I need to refresh. Like what happens with Feanor? But like it seems oh, absurd. His that the elves his, have, his
1: no, body sometimes. collapses into dust.
0: Yeah right. Yeah. yeah. So it seems absurd that the elves wouldn't have come up with something before men showed up, given the number of them that die. On the other hand, from the text, you really only start seeing the discussion of mounds and graves after yes. men are part of the story.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Man, somebody should do a, maybe someone's already done a paper
1: like this. for uh, <laughs> Somebody should do a paper on this. Right, the funerary customs of elves. Um, okay. Well, I think we have to think about this in the um at the crossing of the Helcaraxa, right? I mean, we do talk about elf burials in Middle-earth. There's, there's our first one, right? Um, yep. The, you know, the burial slash commemoration of those who died crossing the Helcaraxa. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Phil... Uh, points out that uh, someone suggested earlier that burying the bodies was to protect them from being despoiled. Right. Um, uh, So that makes sense, even independent, I agree, of sort of mannish customs in that direction. Though, um, I do like the idea. I mean, it is interesting to think, would the elves who interacted with men, would their ideas of what is the proper thing to do with the dead have been influenced in some way uh, by human traditions? Um,
0: especially, especially, especially like, I mean, it's one thing to have kind of a societal set of rights, you know, that right. within like a, within, say, Nor- Nargothrond. Um, uh, but, but, but a lot of, a lot of the instances where we see, um, note where the elves getting buried or, or, or monuments or being erected right. are kind of one off in the field things where it's right. sort of like. You know, like this guy died along our adventure and we don't really have time to haul him back to the whatever kingdom because we're on our way to do whatever. Right. And it's sort of that's a circumstance where like expediency, it sort of makes like it sort of makes sense. Of course, again, you know, I say this as a person living in the as a human living in our world. It makes sense that they would do something. It would seem weird and callous if they just were like, well, that guy's dead. Leave him there. Let's keep going.
1: (gasps) Wait a second. You're right, though. Hang on a second. We do have a piece of testimony about this. Yes. Yes, we do. From Shagrat. Remember when Shagrat and Gorbag find the body of Frodo sitting in the pass, Shagrat calls that, quote, a regular elvish trick, unquote. (laughs) Huh. <laughs> yes, he does. He does. He does. Because uh, one of them says, like, it, the, the 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 other one, the the elvish warrior that's loose, didn't think, didn't seem to have thought much of him, right? Just left him lying. Regular elvish yeah. trick. <laughs> oh, now, of course, Shagrat might be wrong, but that's really interesting, isn't it? Oh yeah. man, yeah. Oh, uh-huh. regular elvish trick. Is it a regular elvish trick? Is Shagrat right about that? Oh my God! Yeah, just to leave the wrapped body lying there. Oh, oh, oh man, yeah. Wow. Someone really needs <laughs> to do a myth paper
0: because yeah. I, I feel like this is a really interesting topic because I feel like there, there's conflicting textual evidence.
1: Right, and f- and f- Phil, uh, you know Phil supplies. In fact, say,
0: there's your title for the myth paper. Something about a regular Elvish trick.
1: Right. A regular Elvish trick, yeah. yeah A regular exactly.
0: Elvish trick, funeral r- Elvish funeral rites in the Silmarillion
1: and the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, someone write that. <laughs> someone write that, exactly, yeah. Now, F- Phil Boswell, of course, reminds us that, the, of course, the, the orcs are not uh, objecting to the fact that uh, they didn't bury their comrade fitly, as Aragorn would say, uh, but rather that they didn't need him. Uh which is what the orcs would obviously do with their companions. Um uh yes. Um <laughs> the regular Elvish trick from Shagrat's perspective might be just leaving perfectly good meat lying around and not eating it. Um but uh Yeah.
0: By the way, so so another another one I've dug up so- Turgon definitely erects a builds, builds a high cairn over his father yes, in
1: Gondolin. Yes, yes, in the mountains, right, so exactly. Sort exactly. of
0: indisputable now that um, uh, it's sort of indisputable that, that elves were definitely doing this, I think, before they ever really interacted with men, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, you can't imagine Turgon being highly influenced by human funerary traditions, right? Yeah. Uh yeah. Okay. All right. Um, boy. So, uh, talking about the plot of the first episode, and we've gotten sidetracked onto three totally like vague, general, non-plot oriented questions. Um, uh, uh, sorry, I'm so excited about remembering the Shagrat quote that I that I, I can barely think about anything else now. Um, Let's not worry about settling all of this for all time. Um, But I'm really glad we had this discussion because that was super fun. So, but let's think in terms of this episode, clearly, clearly, Feanor is going to do something with his father's body. Um, Whatever, how, howsoever regular an elvish trick it might be to leave the dead lying about, um... The uh Fanor's obviously not gonna just like leave his body, his father's body rotting in Formanos where it fell, right? So um that's not gonna happen. Nor do I think the elves would do that anyway, under normal circumstances, like but leave the corpse lying around the house. Um that's obviously not going to happen. Um He would bear it. I, I like the idea of him burying it, him burying it to Lorien right and laying it next to Muriel's corpse now somebody was saying wouldn't that be a little bit weird to have his corpse lying there rotting next to fear next to Muriel's uh, undecaying body Um Uh, of course I'm tempted to say, well, I guess the handmaidens of Este get to earn their overtime, uh, you know, in that, in that circumstance, but, but no, I don't mean that he necessarily has to leave the corpse to decay in the open air, though what actually happens to it, we can leave it sitting there, you know, uh, his body lying next to Muriel's and that can be the last visual image we get of it. We don't have to actually show them disposing of the body eventually, you know, ultimately. Um... You know, he could just, his body could be lying there covered in a sheet uh, next to, next to Muriel's body. Um, And then we have, uh, you know, Feanor and uh, Indus and Fingolfin and Finarfin there, you know, at the uh, site, right? You know, there with the two bodies uh, and they can, you know, would all of the elves show up you know would there be a ceremony would there be a, a gathering i'm not sure there would necessarily be a gathering um i could see it just kind of being a family thing but um i certainly yeah. don't think we necessarily need to have a general conclave here um in fact i think we shouldn't have a general conclave because we want to save the general conclave for later on when Fanor summons them all for his speech um if we have a general funeral and then the speech, I would not want the speech to happen at the funeral. Certainly. Uh, and if we don't have it at the funeral, especially if it's, if, if the funeral's over in Lorien, if we don't have it happen at the funeral, then we have to have this like whole throng of the Noldor following Fanor around all day long. And that, that just seems silly. So I say we have, um, he brings Fanor brings his father's body back to uh, uh, Lorien Right, and Finarfin and Fingolfin and and Indus show up. Maybe they even show up late because Fandor didn't even like invite them or something. But they they having heard that he's going, maybe Nerdanel can tip them off and and they show that he's head, taking his father's body, uh, and they show up and and they sort of encounter him there. But it's not really a funeral. Because right? there wouldn't be a custom. There wouldn't be a let's all gather around and show our respects to the body of the dead. That's not something that they would do. So it's just a he's bringing his father's body to rest next to his mother and they show up. Um, uh, Indus and her sons show up and have a moment with Feanor over the bodies of Muriel and, uh, and Finway. That I think would work. Dramatically, and gives us an opportunity. Maybe Nerdanel is there as well. Maybe she shows up with them, um, and uh, um, you know that gives us a moment to have some family to hash out some family dynamics in private prior to the you know to set up some of the things that are going to be happening at the at the big talk later on. Um, Zach asks, "Would Fanor's sons be present?" Great question. I say no, because if we bring in Fanor's sons, then we get, we'll end up getting everybody. I mean, we'll have to bring in all Fin. you know, would we then bring in Fingolfin and... and F- nah. I'd say just the just the, just the second-generation elves. So just uh, Indus... The, the scene can just be between Indus, Fanor, Fingolfin, and Finarfin, and possibly Nerd and um, That's what I would think in that scene.
0: Yes. Keep it a small, intimate character moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Well, we're just trucking through our slides here, so that's great. Um, uh, so <laughs> I, I, I asked questions about Nerdanel here. Uh, and, you know, is she going to speak against Fanor at the uh, at the big uh, debate? And their, their answer was no. The consensus, she will not speak during the public debate, but her body language will make her disagreement quite clear. Also, she could potentially leave when the oath happens. I kind of like that. Um the one thing I don't like about that is to have Nerdanel never say anything again and walk off stage, and we and and we never hear from her ever again would be hard. Given, um, I mean, it would be a dramatic exit, right? You know, for her just to be standing there and for her to be kind of walking out. Um, she. Yeah. Here's what I'm struggling with. What I'm struggling with is what does it mean? What her rejection of Feanor, what role does it play? Not politically, because she doesn't have to, it's okay for her not to have a political role. She doesn't have to be one of the spokespersons to represent a point of view of the Noldor as a whole. It's okay if she doesn't do that. But The estrangement from Nerdanel has to be a crucial moment in Feanor's character development. Right? Um, And so we have to think about that moment and the significance of that moment. When Nerdanel walks out, here's how I'm picturing that. I'm picturing... She doesn't have to have dialogue. She doesn't have to speak publicly. But there needs to be, I would think, there needs to be this sort of final battle of wills between Nerdanel and and Feanor, where she is trying to... uh, The transaction would be her communicating to Feanor, you know this is crazy, right? You know you have gone completely off the rails right you know that you are leading yourself our family and our people into hopeless destruction right y- you understand how crazy this is and him basically defying that and being like no i'm not crazy you're you don't understand i'm not saying any of this stuff has to happen in words but that transaction needs to happen her role has been to counterbalance him her role has been the only one whose counsel he would take or really listen to um, we don't. I. It would be kind of interesting to have that happen non-verbally, but it has to happen. Like we can't just have her like walking off and nobody notices, right? I mean, that moment when they are estranged forever. This is closing down. Um, this is the end of a plot line that you know was a, a was a significant thread. Uh, you know, their relationship through season two. Um, and. You know, one of the things that we were talking about with Feanor's development last season was um, sort of the point of no return, right? You know, when is the point of no return? Where does where does he, uh, you know, where does the fall occur? You know, where... where and uh, the we were emphasizing the significance, of course, of drawing his sword on his brother. That was a big deal. You know, that was a major turning point. Um, his choice not to give up the Silmarils... Uh, to restore the trees is a major moment. Um, his estrangement from his wife is associated. His decision to leave Valinor and to break his banishment is a huge deal, right? He shows up in Tyrion, despite so he has never yet openly defied the Valar. He's never openly disobeyed the Valar before. Um, they banished him. He went. They summoned him back for the feast, and he came. He's never yet openly defied them. When he returns to Tyrion to deliver his speech, he's crossed the Rubicon with the Valar, right? And it seems to me that the relationship with we need to we need to be catching we need to be picking up on that. And I think that the relationship with Nerdenel can be a vehicle for making that happen. Um, for you know, maybe we have a conversation with them beforehand. Maybe she tries to. St- maybe he shows up at Tyrion, and she, like, before he starts his speech, we have a confrontation, the final confrontation between the two, where she tries to stop him from going. Um, where she is telling him, "Like, dude, you are banished. You cannot do this." Uh, and um, so that we are really emphasizing when he walks into that city. And starts making his speech. It's not the speech. You know, the oath, of course, is a major point of no return, but in a sense, he's already made that choice, right? The oath is more like the outward, you know, sort of finalizing right, the, of the, the deal.
0: The oath is like the, the public uh, performance of yes. the decision that he's already made. The, exactly. The decision to return, exactly. as you say. That's, that's the uh, internal, oh, that's when he made the decision.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I mean, it's not to say that the oath isn't a big deal. I'm not trying to minimize the oath in any way. But yeah, public performance of the internal choice he's already made. That's exactly what I was thinking, Dave. And if we have if we show the moment of choice. Right. Or the moment when he, uh, you know, sort of openly. Not in public, but in front of everybody, but even just in private, when he says it, like when he makes it clear that he has made you know, what choice it is that he has made. I think that we have that confrontation with nerd in advance where she tries to stop him from going in. Um, I like that. Um, interesting. Uh, Hakan says that her words to him in that debate should be like the personal version of the doom of Mandos. Uh, I like that yeah. concept. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Nick says the oath seems very premeditated. Exactly, he's already thought of the oath, right? He's planning to do it. Um, it's it's not been done yet, you know, and so that's a that's a that's a big deal. But, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, Tony says that he thinks that he, he that Feanor should see Nerdanel's disagreement as a betrayal that she is taking the side of the Valar against him. Um,
0: yes, and that, that
1: seems very likely. That seems very likely. Um, and this also causes him to distrust the rest of the Noldor even more, making it easier for him to burn the ships and abandon Fingolfin's folk later on. Uh, I agree, Tony, we do need to be thinking about um, sort of planting the seeds. Not only for the oath and the kinslaying, but for the the abandonment of... of um, Fingolfin as well. Um, Yeah. Uh, Corita wants her to echo something she's already said, or maybe uh, that he said to her early in their relationship. Um, Yeah, that'd be really cool. This is the, this is the end this is the end of their relationship right here. Um, so, absolutely, we need to be tying. We, we would need, you know, in writing the script, we would need to be tying this together with conversations they have had before. Um, absolutely. <clears throat> Marielle thinks that it should shock Feanor and his sons, that they should be angry at her uh, for the stand that she is taking, for breaking ranks with them, for siding with the Valar against them, uh, for making herself their enemy. Um, Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So if we have that debate first, um, and then he crosses the line, and he goes into the city, and he makes this, but now she doesn't need to say anything, right? She just stands there disapprovingly. Perhaps she could walk out at a dramatic point, not to make it look like she's stomping off in a huff, but, um, you know, at, at at a point in the debate. Um, No, I don't like her leaving because that, that I don't want her to walk out. The reason I don't want her to walk out is there are going to be some who are speaking against Feanor and Feanor who is trying to persuade everyone. And if she walks out, that seems to be her just kind of abdicating a decision, not standing against him. Right. Um, To walk out is not to stand with his opponents as well. Right. Um, So I would rather have her remain and remain silent. Uh, and if she walks out, I think that would, in the end, probably okay. seem weak. Makes sense. Ooh, Tony asks the question: when, uh, Does she actually? Does she actually go to the Valar? That would that would be really interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I have to think about that. Okay. Um, okay. Yep. Good. All right. I'm happy with Nerdenell. So, I was asking about speak people to speak at the debate, and so this I think was also a follow up from the question about Nerdenell. Are we going to get you know female voices at the debate? And the reminder of the two other females that we have, one of whom, of course, is uh, is there, and one of was one of my questions. What are we going to do? with Galadriel. Um, and the sentiment was for Galadriel to be anti-Fanor but pro Middle-earth. Um, in general I agree. Of, of all the different Galadriels that Tolkien considered, I like the one in the published Silmarillion. I like the one who is for whom the the arrival in Middle earth is also a kind of fall. I like the flawed Galadriel, not the like perfect awesome hero anti-fanor going with uh, pure motivations to try to save all the rest of the elves. Um, I would rather, I would rather have her, uh, uh, um, tempt- giving into temptation here, um, following Fëanor with mixed. I, I, the idea of her being anti-Fëanor, right? Her responding against Fëanor and and thinking that he is insane and being opposed to him, um, but yet she wants to go to Middle Earth, right? Um, so that's really interesting. I love this point that she can serve as a voice for Finarfin's people who wind up going. Finarfin of course is going to remain and many of his people will also turn back and end up staying, uh, in Valinor, but not all of them will. Some of them will go. Now, of course they his sons are also going to be going, of course, most notably, but it would be really interesting, uh, if, uh, you know, a bunch of people are, are following, um, are following Galadriel's lead. Um, you know, the line that just popped into my head is, uh, from Boromir, right? Saruman was a traitor, but didn't he, did he not have some wisdom, right? Uh, when he argues for taking the ring and using it, right? Um, I can see Galadriel taking that exact kind of tack in this conversation, right? Um, Feanor is a madman and a traitor. Uh, but he has some wisdom, right? We are kind of cooped in a narrow place here, right? Uh, we uh, it would be uh, it would be it would be good uh, to uh, uh, to go. Um, I think Phil is asking a question about Goadriel's name. Of course, she does have several names. I think we just call her Galadriel. I don't think we mess around with that right now. Um, we have enough people with enough names. Uh, and if we have somebody whose name changes, it has to be at a really significant moment, right? You know, like the, like the change from Melkor to Morgoth <clears throat> that we are undertaking in this season. Uh, so the other one is uh, Irime, who wants revenge against Melkor for the death of her father, Finway. Irime, of course, is the sister, uh, not mentioned in, this, in the Silmarillion she does not care about the Silmarils. Prior to this she was always the closest to her brother Fingolfin and was not a fan of Feanor. Um, so basically we have Ireme. So the, the sort of division uh, and Mariel was suggesting this. We have sort of these three women representing three different reactions. Um, uh, Nerdanel, not approving of the whole thing. Goadriel not approving of Feanor and his vengeance kick but but wanting to go to Middle-earth. Ireme not caring about Middle-earth, but wanting vengeance uh, against Morgoth. Uh, I kind of like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, ooh, Tony suggests oh, you know, a line from Galadriel, so- something along the lines of, uh, we will come with you, but we will not follow you. Uh, yes, that, cause, and that, that's a major issue. Lots of people are going to be in that camp. Goadriel would speak for many in saying, we will come with you, but we will not follow you. Um, because most of them want to follow Fingolfin. Instead, remember, Fingolfin has been their leader for years now, uh, as while Feanor has been in Formanos. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, all right, let's keep going. Other voices. Finarfin. We know that Fenarfin is yet yeah, don't don't be hasty is his message, right? His his you know we are told what he says at the debate, and that is that they should uh, uh, they should stop and think, right? Let's not do anything that we will regret without thinking it carefully through first. This is Finarfin's tack. So, in other words, Finarfin's role in the debate is not to be like this is wrong, we shouldn't do this, but rather let's not rush off, uh, let's not. Let's not be hasty. Um, Fingolfin is the one that I think... Um, this is the thing that could be really interesting. I think that Fingolfin... Yeah,
2: he, should be, he should be
0: super conflicted.
1: Super conflicted. Because he's the one who believes this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. Yeah. Um, Finarfin isn't the one saying this is wrong. Fingolfin is the one saying this is wrong. And yet, he's promised to follow f- where Feanor leads. Um, right. Fanor can taunt him with that I would think um, you know little brother you said where I, where I lead you will follow um, yeah. you know are you, are you going to be a liar as well as a coward um,
0: yeah that's a good idea Like that should be Fing- Fingolfin should have a brief moment of, of trying to find some way to communicate to, 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 his, to his brother that this is a bad idea and we shouldn't do this and Van or should rebuke him. Yes. And then what we should see is that Fingolfin Fingolfin knows he's boxed in. Yes. That he does not want to admit to being what Van or has accused him. And so he feels that it he feels that he has no choice but to go along with this.
1: And he is also determined to continue being a leader to the people who are going. And of course, many of yep. them, like you know, the Goadrial camp, all make it clear that they are they want to return to Middle Earth. You know, this is yeah. that they, they agree with Feanor that uh, the life in Valinor isn't necessarily all that, and that they want to return. But they, uh, uh, but they, they're not comfortable following Feanor. Th- that basically, if Fingolfin doesn't come with them, yeah. Fingolfin would be just like abandoning them to Feanor, and he should feel that fairly keenly, right? Yeah, um, yeah,
0: and that can maybe be his. To I don't know who. I mean, is, fin, is Fingolfin mostly just surrounded by people who are gung-ho about going, or is he going to have a few people in his entourage that when he announces we're going uh, and he's going, that is he going to have people around him who say, dude, what are you doing? This is crazy. Um, assuming that he has people like that around him, I think his explanation or justification will be along these lines. It will be. It will be. I have to go because I have to watch out for our people and that sort of thing. Right. Like I think he'll, I think he'll kind of, I think he'll focus on that as his justification, as his rationalization for going. Yes. And sort of, and sort of not and kind of, kind of ignore or skate over the fact that he's doing it just because he wants to prove something. To yes. Or, you
1: know. Yes. I think that there should be a voice that says perhaps in private, perhaps in public to, Fingolfin, like of Fingolfin's followers somebody saying you know, this is a bad idea I think it should be Turgon um, the reason I say that his, so his his second son Turgon we know that Fingon is not a candidate for this because Fingon and Mithros are tight right? so Fingon is going to want to go um, if anything Fingon is going to want to try to save his friend like morally spiritually save his friend whom he's just heard take this terrible oath right? Um, so Fingon is going to be really alarmed, and he's going to want to go along to try to help and you know redeem Mithros. And of course, the fact that he ends up physically saving him, we can we can again be sowing the seeds for that, right? So his desire to save Mithros is going to be a strong motivation for him to accompany them. So Fingolfin's eldest son, for his own reasons, very much wants to go. Turgon, however. Um, Turgon, eventually, is going to be setting up his own little... <laughs> the guy who's going to set himself up in Gondolin and refuse to allow anyone ever to leave for, like, the rest of time can't be somebody who has... That's not the personality profile of somebody who objects to being hemmed in a narrow place. Right, uh, somebody for whom Valinor was not didn't offer a wide enough scope for his talents, and he needed to spread out in Middle Earth. Turgon doesn't seem to be a spread out kind of guy, right? Uh, and what he sets up in Gondolin is also the most sort of Valinor centric of all of the Elvish kingdoms, even to the fact that he builds the little his, you know, he he constructs his little replica trees in it, right? Um, Turgon loves Tyrion, Marie, exactly. And he. so he, I think he, of all of, of Fingolfin's sons, is the most Valinor-oriented. He's still going to go. He's going to go with his father and his brothers. Um, but I think he's the one who wants to less. So I think if it wants to least. So if we need a voice uh, f- of opposition within Fingolfin's family, I think Turgon is clearly the one. And, of course, you notice how it makes it then double tragic that he wants... He, he's the one who least wants to go and he's the one whose wife dies in the crossing of the Helcaraxa so um, yeah, yeah, and Tony yes, Erethel should also immediately choose to go since she is close to the sons of Feanor and I would think that Erethel also um, we know that she has an issue with being hemmed in a narrow place, right um, so she should be in the Galadriel camp basically um, yeah um, yeah, Marielle was just thinking the same thing. Do we give Arethel a voice here? I think that we can, or even if she doesn't speak, I mean, there are only so many characters that we can have speak or it's going to be super confusing who's who and what's going on. Um, but uh, but we can at least have Arethel clearly agreeing with and standing with. I, I, I think Galadriel is the clearest uh, indicator there. But um, yeah. Hakan suggests that Turgon isn't going to argue, but he would put in a word of caution. Yes, exactly. I don't think that he you know, defies his father. I think that he would he would submit to Fingolfin, but uh, he would put in a word of caution and possibly um, say something in private to his father afterwards. Uh, Finrod. Uh, Finrod, soon to be Felagund, uh, stands with his father. His father is Finarfin, but I don't think he wants to go. Finarfin wants to go. Um, the one who stands most closely with Finarfin is Oradreth. Um, you know, the text says that Oradreth spoke like his father, you know, the voice of reason, let's not be hasty, let's stop and think this through a little bit more before we do anything rash, that's Oradreth's line as well as Finarfin's. Finrod is keen. The rest of the sons of Finarfin are keen. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, they're not going to totally break with their father either. So, um, Hey, Marie, let's have Finrod, let's establish, we could use this as a moment to establish Finrod, uh, and Turgon's friendship. Right. So Finrod and Turgon both, uh, urge caution. Right. Again, not, not speaking like exactly like Finarfin, but, um, offer caution to Fingolfin and the other followers. Um, but, uh, but we can see that fin- Finrod, rather, uh, is interested. I mean, he does he does want to go. Um, okay. Okay. I don't think the Sons of Fanor say much. I can't imagine they do. I mean, they're going to be just mostly deferring to their dad. Um... I think the Sons of Feanor's role is basically to kind of, the seven of them stand shoulder to shoulder and uh, kind of be a united front with their dad. Um, Maybe Mithros, maybe we have Mithros look uncomfortable. Um, I mean, I could imagine him speaking the oath and then, like, meeting Fingon's eyes and looking away uh, to give some indicator that he has misgivings about his father's... uh, about his father's actions here, but he's not going to break ranks, and he's certainly not going to speak out against him. Um, so yeah, Mariel, if we want any private hesitation on the part of the uh, of the sons of Theonor, I think it's got to be with Mithros and possibly with Magor, setting up, of course, the discussion between them at the very, very end uh, when they're w- you know with their debate of whether they try to get the Silmarils. Um,
0: don't think um, Kurufin and Coronir would be the guys who would be like you know she dad this seems this seems rad yeah
1: Yeah, exactly yeah Yeah. Kurufin is uh, is all about that yeah
0: he's he's always been the voice of reason yeah also how old are these guys at this point anyway
1: oh they're all full grown because we've got their children around already
0: oh that's true that's true yeah I'm just wondering can we get like a can we get like a I, ho- I hope we have a really disturbing shot of like a, a small child so, you know like like shouting shout, issuing a blood curdling yell hold, hoisting a sword shouting out they need to we need to head to middle earth and <laughs> conquer lands
1: <laughs> okay. uh, no no I, 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 I don't think we're going to do that um, oh yeah Hakan wants a Gildor and Glorian cameo here uh <laughs> Yeah. Well he's of the house of Finrod, he's in exile, so yeah, he he'd have been there. He, standing with he, fin, standing with Finrod. So yeah, we just have to one of the guys that we have standing with Finrod has to be cast as Gildor later on, so there we go. Um uh, Mario asks what is Kelebrimbor doing? Uh, they do he's the, the
0: kid with the sword.
1: He's a kid with this a kid brandishing the sword. No, but he'd be yes. brandishing, like, a a, 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 you know, a hammer and a set of tongs or something. Toolbox? Yeah, a toolbox. Brandishing a toolbox. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Shouting about the rich mineral deposits in Middle Earth.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. Now, of course, and as Mary reminds he doesn't take the oath, right? Only the sons of Fanar takes take the oath. Um, but, um... Yeah,
0: <laughs> he's one of the people standing there shouting. Yeah, that sounds great. You guys do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I really I love the idea of people. I love the idea of there being a bunch of enablers around, um, <laughs> supporting fans or egging um, them on, saying yes, yeah, so let's go to Middle Earth. But then, like you know, well, well I'm, not, I'm not making this. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you know we don't get anybody. I mean, notice that uh, we have friends and supporters named of, you know, many of the other elf lords, right, like the people in Doriath, right, you know, with uh, with, with, you know, uh, Mablung and and, uh, and uh, Beleg and Keleborn and Dairon, right, you know, we have folks like Glorfindel and Gildor and Glorian um, and Icthelian. Um, Glorfindel, as Hakan points out, should also be there, of course. Um but um uh but with fanor, it's just his kids, right his kids and his grandkids they're, I mean there are other fanorians, but uh, they're never named. We never get any other elves, you know uh, any of their captains or or friends interesting, anyway, okay, um I don't th- i I don't think that we need other random noldor um mostly just because I think we have enough folks and we want to focus the action on people who we're going to see again right? I mean we're leaving Martan and Rumil behind forever here in Valinor um, so uh, I think that they don't need, to, don't, don't need to speak but again folks like <clears throat> Gorfindel and Icthelion we're going to hear more from them later on right? So uh, meeting them would be cool
0: well, this sounds good.
1: Okay, all although, right.
0: Although I think a, an Easter egg moment for Rumil would, would, would be important.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. That would be good. That would be good. Um, yeah. Once in a
0: while, we got to throw a bone to the, the super fans.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and Marielle, I think that's exactly right. Uh, she points out this isn't a democracy. Uh, only the, the lords, that is, you know, only like the royal family, speak. Uh, and I love the comparison. She says it's like in the Iliad you know right when only like the kings and captains uh, speak in their in the debates um, yeah yeah no exactly i think I, I don't think we need to have certainly like yeah gorfindel gildorin glory and Glorian, they're not going to they're not going to speak in the debate um
0: yeah. So is not hosting a town hall meeting
1: here? No, this is not a town hall to meeting, pulse. no. To get the pulse of his
0: constituency?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, he's trying to dictate the, 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 the pulse of his constituency. Um, right. Keep in mind, however, that um, we do, we can't forget that this moment, this is one of the high points of Feanor's entire career. Like, in the, in the list of Accomplishments of like when when Feodor makes up his resume, afterwards you know of like things I accomplished during my life. This is one of the big deals, right? Um, not just because incited beca- rebellion against incited Re- 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 successfully convinced the Noldor to rebel against the Valar. like It's not a great thing to boast of, but it wasn't. A, it was a mighty accomplishment. Like the the power of his the power of his speech, the power of his words in being able to sway and convince everyone around him. Um, yeah. We have to make sure to avoid, um, we have to make sure to avoid having it look like everybody. It would be easy if we're not careful, I think, to have like the Fingolfin and Finarfin crowd. Because if, if you think about the, all those characters that we just listed who are all saying things, notice nobody is speaking totally on Feanor's side. Right, we have one person. We have we have all this long list of people who are some are in favor of this thing and some are in favor of that thing, and many of them have reservations. The total number of people we just listed who have reservations and 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 speak against the plan to rebel and leave far outnumbered. The only one we have in the other camp is like fair. That's it. Like it's him yeah. against every against like the wisdom of everybody else, and he wins. Like he's got to win that debate and he's not going to win it logically. Right. I mean, he's not going to argue everybody else into submission and, and, and everybody be like, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is really the best idea. Clearly. Um, they have to just be moved and stirred by his, and that's going to be a trick. It's going to be a real challenge, uh, to depict, um, them getting swept away by his charisma.
0: Looking at the slide, some of the questions posed, I think there are actually pretty obvious answers to most of these. Mm -hmm. Um, is the old spontaneous or pre-planned? I think it should, on screen, we should not have like a scene where he's pl- talking to his son saying, "Okay, so I'm going to make this speech. Right. We're going to take it." Out. Like I think I've written I out a copy for off- each
1: of you so you can memorize it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think to the audience it should appear it should have, in the moment should appear spontaneous because that will be way more dramatic. But that but it should be heavily implied that it was pre-planned based on. Conversations leading up to it, you know, that it should be based on Feanor. The kind of the discussion and the and the and the some of the debates, things with um, with uh, Nerdnell and stuff, should should make it very clear that this is where his mind was, right. and that the oath is just the culmination. Right. I think um, visually, it's going to be way more impressive if if Feanor, especially as the this note mentions, I think Feanor should just say the oath and then maybe his sons agree to it or something but i don't think it's necessary that the sons make it at this moment since they i think it's way more dramatic if Fanor delivers this speech on screen alone and and sort of and what we see is that this it washes over the the um the the crowds like a tide and changes everyone's minds right and then later after he dies that's when his sons will will do a recall they will they will they will then recapitulate the oath themselves And then this is a, that would be a dramatic moment pointing back to this one. I think that's way cooler than just having the son say it with him now and have them say it again.
1: That is interesting. That is interesting. I was, uh, I was, I was, I was briefly imagining a scene in which he, um, he actually like dictates dictates the oath and his sons repeat it after him line by line, which could work really well dramatically as the oath gets more and more alarming all the way down. Like it, it starts off sounding fairly standard and then with each new clause it's like more alarming and like I can't believe that and like, you know, people like people's eyes widening as the as the oath goes on. I think that could unroll in some really interesting ways. But um but I like your idea, um, and I agree with uh, what Chris Graham was just saying. The original oath is passionate and spontaneous from Feanor's lips. It certainly feels that way, right? Um, yeah. But yeah. In
0: imagine, imagine sort of the drama of, so Feanor makes this speech, and this oath, and it can maybe be implied that um, other people take it afterward, but that isn't necessarily shown on screen. But imagine sort of the drama of that and kind of, and then seeing the aftermath of what people think of it, and how bad it was, and then a couple episodes later, some uh, his sons upon his death take it upon themselves to now t- make the oath themselves. Right. You know, sort of a because with that with that suggest, that there there could be sort of a moment of potential relief for the audience where they're like, Fanor's dead. Maybe things can go back to normal, right? And things right. People can be normal again, you know. And maybe, maybe they'll, maybe his sons will pull back, and then his sons make the oath. And you're like, nope, never mind. It's just getting worse.
1: Well, and um, especially when, since we, we, we're setting up for that, right? Because at the burning of the yeah. ships, Mithros stands aside, so it looks like yeah. the second generation—they're not unified in this, right? Maybe Mithros yeah. is going to be the one who brings the family of Fanor back into the fold, yeah. right? And, and and atones for what they've done, and then he takes the oath, right? yeah
0: yeah I think I think having the sons not take the oath on screen until later um, it, 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 it elevates them in terms of as, as you know sort of antagonists in the sense that it, instead of them kind of being you know taking the oath now and then and then later on, they're bound by it. When like right. Feanor dies, they have to keep going. Right. Rather, what we show is we show an intentional, like them, intentionally taking upon themselves to the continue his mission. Right. Uh, it kind of that sort of elevates them as you know, not just Feanor's flunky sons, but actually, you know, kind of like sort of, so, sort of like Feanor reborn again. That that given an you know, they're given an opportunity to repent and draw back, and instead they double down.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. Though, of course you add in the extra factor, they do it while Fanor is still alive, while he's dying. Yes. Right? And yeah, so, yeah, so, so you still have the element of compulsion there, right? Maithros does it yeah. not because he's totally gung-ho about the oath, but because his father lays it upon him to, like, take or to renew the oath at that moment. Yeah, yeah I like it. Um, yeah, perfect. So we can see yeah, him right, being trapped paradise. or feeling trapped, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, that's perfect. I like that, because um, that, that, high, that uh, adds additional tragedy.
1: Yes, yeah. So it's still their choice, but it's uh, but it but 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 it's still but it it gives that sort of tragic uh, that tragic uh, tragic element to it. Um, Yeah, I I like that. We could even imply that maybe they took it also. We could even allude to the fact that others took the oath with Feanor after he uttered it. You know, at the time, Um, but we could lay the dramatic stress upon that moment when they. When they renew the oath, when they so we don't see them speaking it on screen until that moment at Fanor's death. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. I like that. Cool. Good. I
0: think that's super dramatic.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's nice. I like it. Okay. Um, All right. So yeah, we talked about the reciting of the oath. Let's see. Do we plan to have most of the discussion about leaving Valinor happen during or after Fanor's speech? Or do we want to start that debate through scenes between the characters beforehand? No, I think it needs to be. It needs to be a, an idea that's really okay. The idea was planted by Melkor already. It's um, part of the unrest um, that the Noldor have been experiencing. Um, but I don't think we we can't undermine. The way in which Feanor's speech and Feanor's charisma sweeps them away, right? Um, So, if we have a bunch of people already being like, "I don't know, do you want to blow this joint or what?" I've been kind of thinking about it, and then Feanor gives it. Then it, then I think that really decreases the effect of that. You know, that should clearly be his speech should be seen to be the catalyst. Um,
0: The one thing I would say about that is, if there are discussions, one way to make the speech more dramatic. Is to demonstrate or show um, a, a certain amount of pre-existing resistance to the idea. Right. So, if we can plant some 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 preview debates where where certain people that, that I think we've already decided like these people will definitely be on his side, kind of kind of start broaching the idea, and kind of taking the you know sort of taking the temperature of, of everyone else. And what it becomes clear is, as you said, the majority of people at, at, you know, best case scenario, like like the majority of people have at a minimum reservations or yes. concerns or want to be cautious. And there's some people that outright, outright oppose him. Yes. And then what we show is those same people after the speech have been won over. So that's one thing we could do if we can plant some discussion or debate early on. We can... We can clearly show that there is that people are not on Fëanor's side to start with, and then they are won over by the speech.
1: Yes, I like this idea, and I have <clears throat> I have an idea for for where for how we can do that. Um, we need to have a Fingolfin scene, Fingolfin and his people scene prior to this, because we have to address the question of the kingship. Somebody, I mean, F- Fingolfin's been ruling in Tyrion. Fëanor is still banished right he's been brought back for the festival but he wasn't unbanished he's still yes. he's still exiled so now that Finway is dead it makes a lot of sense that somebody his sons and him uh, you know maybe, maybe finarfin should probably be there will have this conversation with fingolfin saying what happens now who's in charge you oh, or yeah. Feanor?
0: perfect yeah so we don't have to have we don't have to rehearse the debate about whether to go to Middle-Earth. But right. well, what we can have is a, well, Finway's dead and Faenor's returning to Tyrion. He's been summoned. What's going to happen? Are they going to pass the, are they going to give the kingship back to him? No, we don't want that. We support you. Yeah, that's right. We can, we can demonstrate that there is resistance to Fanor as an individual in general, without yes. actually um, telegraphing where things are really going.
1: Yeah. And I like that. You're right. If we don't bring up the whole issue of returning, if, if the return to Middle-Earth doesn't even seem to be on the table, Right, but that's what comes in in Fanor's, and it's clear with through people like Goadriel, right? We can show how this yeah. idea of returning to Middle Earth and establishing a realm for yourself, and you know the, the the wide expanse of Middle Earth that has been that you know that has been kept from us by the Valar, um, that idea is the one that really like the, the two things. That he's offering them, right? The two things that he is convincing them of is a: Wouldn't it be awesome to return to Middle Earth? And b: Don't you want to get vengeance against Morgoth? And that, and different people will be swayed to different extents by those two sides, right? Um, uh, but those are the two things that are going to be the that that, that are going to be the the uh, uh, the moving. So, I, so again that I think helps us to explain if we show people at least the leaders in Fingolfin's sort of inner circle right, being resistant to Feanor personally but yet even some of those such as uh, Fingon and Goadriel and even Finrod um, are they're, they're they're very attracted by what Feanor is offering even though they're resistant to him himself so that way we can show them not just reversing themselves and yet uh, we show them uh, being sort of swept away. Yeah, exactly, Tony. Because they're immortal, they don't have a clear succession plan worked out. Absolutely. So it would be a big open question. Who, who really is the leader now? Um, there's, not a, there's not an heir apparent. Um, there's, not a, there's no convention for that. Um, so it would just be an open question and I think that's what we see later on too by the way right that's why uh, that's why Fingon's brother instead of his son becomes high king after Fingon dies um, because there's not a clear uh, inheritance tradition among the elves because why would immortals establish a clear inheritance tradition um, but uh, yeah okay cool good um,
0: it's hard to believe that the elves didn't... Uh, it's hard to believe that the elves haven't established their, you know, dynastic policies <laughs> right. and have to peaceably transfer
1: power. Right. When no one's ever died. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's... it's. it's uh, uh, yeah. These guys
0: don't plan ahead. They have no funeral rites. Exactly. No um, plan for transferring power.
1: Sloppy. Sloppy. Um, the last question touches on, of course, that other big subject we've already discussed. What are the Valar up to? I li- the idea that I tossed out quite spontaneously in the midst of our earlier discussion I like more and more the more I think about it namely um, let's let's open episode two with that let's open episode two with the with the discussion of the Valar what are they going to do in response to Feanor's breaking his banishment and then the decision of the Noldor to leave um, I think that's a good tradition a good transition rather to kind of recap. What happened in the previous episode and move forward into the next one. Um, uh, so, yeah, th- there's a lot of potential for uh, some sort of cool, dramatic moments there. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to, coming at the end of this episode, or it would have to come at the end, right? Because they'd have to be reacting to what Feanor did. Um, yeah. But, I mean, what an anticlimactic way to end. This episode, right, with like going to the Valar and having them talk about, you know, having ha- have them break down the the debate that that can't be. I
0: don't, I'm not sure that's necessary, but what we can show is um, we can just do a reaction shot where we just show them feeling. Like we could show like Bardo with a tear in her eye.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I love Nick's idea. Let's show. what's yeah, uh, like during the during the speech, like during the maybe during the oath, right? We show we we cut to Manwe and Varda sitting on their thrones he, seeing and hearing what Fanor is doing right um and responding to it but they don't uh you know that's all we see we just so we know that they're aware of it but we don't we don't they get a, any discussion yet
0: they have a live stream of it
2: on a large, yeah large yeah
1: panel display exactly they're live streaming the oath of fanor uh in in the ring of doom yeah yeah the the uh, the Valar are all gathered around. The myar can probably get it on pay-per-view. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's totally, that's totally what happens. But no, I like, you know, having, having them sitting on the seats of, you know, seeing and hearing basically up on Tiniquito and looking down upon, uh, upon, upon Fanor would be, would be cool. It would also give us some really fun opportunities to have, uh, I guess it'd be really, it'd be, it's right after Valinor is darkened, so we wouldn't have enough light to do this. It'd be a shame, because uh, we could we could have, uh, you know, showing, after we show Manwe and Varda looking down on them from their seats upon Teniquetil, having Teniquetil in the background uh, of the discussion and debate would be, kind of, would, would become interesting. Um, but of course it'd be too dark to see a mountain in the distance, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Mario points out that Varda is there. We can have as much light as we want, right? No, but I mean atmospheric light. Like, like you're not gonna have light to see, to illuminate a mountain in the distance. You could, of course, Mario. We could have a light atop Tiniquatil, right? Uh, Where Varda is, there could be light. So you could perhaps see the shining light of Varda in the background, right up on the mountain. Um, that could be kind of cool. but Okay, good. All right. Well, this comes to the end of our time, so questions for next time. Uh, we did a lot of good work today. Questions for next time. So, see, episode two, we got the Kinslaying, right? So, my questions. How does the crisis at the harbor fit in with the story we developed for Old way? We had talked about killing off Olway in the next episode. Uh, We 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 need to remember and to be reminding our viewers who have not seen Olway in quite some time. um, We need to be reminding them of the story of Olway. Remember Olway's calling and his decision to go over the seas and this idea that we had of of him having some significant role to play, which is perhaps going to be thwarted by his death. Right. So we got to we got to work that somehow. We we have to make sure that Olway is not just a a high-profile red shirt in, uh, in the, uh, if we're going to kill him off, it needs to really mean something, uh, in, uh, um, in the Kinsling. Who does what during the battle? How involved are our main characters? How do we want to handle this? I mean, I, I don't think we necessarily need to have a big, like, tactical developments, uh, in the battle, but, um...
0: But, but it does. Like, who do we want to show doing what? Exactly. Who's uh, who's on screen running around murdering?
1: People? Yes. Who's like we, we have to? We kind of need to choose which of our main characters do we want to show spattered in gore? Right. I mean, who literally has blood on his hands? That's a question, right? I mean, it becomes a debate later on. Uh, remember the sons of Finarfin saying, "We came," saying to Thingol, "We came not, you know, red-handed uh, uh, from the slaying of our kin." Yeah, yeah, but who, who does? Who, who's involved,
0: Who's maybe in? You know, like, like, do we want to show a distinction between sort of the, you know, uh, Kurlfin running around cutting down people who are fleeing versus, you know, um, other other like Galadriel, like, like, kind of in the thick of things and like, you know, encountering resistance and like, understandably fighting back to defend her life and killing people, but reluctantly, like, do it? Do you know? I, I, like, right. Yeah, because 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 this is really where we set up sort of this is another this is a good opportunity to set up like who has what standing in this crowd? Who, who are the instigators? Yes. and the real criminals and, and which people are kind of like, you know, guilty by association uh, and which people were in the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: Yeah. Not to mention the fact that this who does what here, um, what role which of these people has a huge impact will have a huge impact on their relationships with each other, right? Yeah. Because, you know, though like the sons of Fan are going to remember which of the other people stood back and did nothing or even yeah. fought on the other side. Remember, some of them are going to come in and fight against the Fanorians, right? That's not going to be quickly forgotten. So who should we have do that? Nope. Uh, and, um, and, and again, who stands back and does nothing? And what exactly do they do? I mean, does Galadriel have blood on her hands? Probably not. Yeah. Does does uh, uh, does Fingon have blood on his hands, and how does that connect with his saving of Mithros later on? Is he trying to atone yeah. for uh, for his own sins as well? You know what? This am- also,
0: this also will impact the receptions people receive from um, um, from the Sindar.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know, anyone, exactly.
0: We can't show anyone on screen murdering hapless Teleri, and then later show them in the court of Thingol.
1: Right, being buddies, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, we've got to be careful about that. So, so we need to be thinking through who does what. Not to mention like the personal significance, right? I mean, like you know, the images, like the visual images. We've got when we show Galadriel, we've got to be thoughtful about this, right? Galadriel is going to be flashing back to this moment, right, for millennia after this, and it gives us an opportunity to to be recalling these things, the individual decisions made by particular people during this battle have to be things that are going to come up for them later in decisions that come up later on in their lives. So we need to be we need to think we can't we can't think in just broad terms like the Fëanorians did this and some of the people of Fingolv, and the people of Fëanor stood back or the people of Finarfin stood back and didn't or uh, and got there late. We can't think in the kinds of general terms that the book gives us there. We need to be coming down much more close. And I'm much more interested in that. I think that that the battle itself should be focused not on, like, the tactical ebb and flow of the combat, um, but should be focused entirely upon the actions of individuals, basically. Um, because those are what's going to really... what what, what is going to really matter uh, later on. So, okay, and then... How do we handle the reactions and non-intervention of the Valar? Um, we've got to think that through. And so I think that maybe we go beginning and ending of the episode. We start and finish with the Valar, perhaps. But we'll think about that next time. But we've got to do the Valar Council. So what would you want to have the Valar say? Do we have do we have a small Valar scene? Like maybe just a conversation between Varda, Mandos, and Manwe, for instance? Or do we have uh, the full Ring of Doom thing happening and debate and... Uh, Tolkien getting to say fun Tolkien things and Olmo having an opinion. What do we do? Do we, do we do we do we do that or not? And if so, who says? You know who who's going to take what part? So those are the questions. Lots of things to be thinking about this next episode. Episode two, the Kinslaying. I mean, it's hard to underestimate what a huge deal the Kinslaying is. This may be one of the single biggest. Most important scenes we've ever depicted, right? The darkening of Valinor is a big deal, but in a sense, there's less leeway there. We know what happened, right? Uh, you know, Ungoliant and and uh, and Melkor and the trees. Um, but this, this is uh, the the number of characters and the number of story arcs that this is going to impact, and the role this is going to have on everything else. It's really, uh, it's really huge. So, it will be, uh, it will be. It will be fun to think through, and I I, we, I hope to do it with as much of your input as we can. Um, Hakon wants to know what what about Ingwe. Well, Ingwe is up on the mountain, right? So he doesn't live in Tyrion anymore. Uh, so Ingwe and the and the Vanyar I think shouldn't be there. Um, yeah, yeah. I I think Ingwe we can leave out pretty much entirely. But yeah. Interesting, yeah, Tony Tony Mead says that uh, the Kinslaying is basically the Red Wedding of the Silmarillion. Uh, kind of, in a sense, yeah. Um, definitely some parallels there. Oh, who breaks Fingolfin's sword? Nick, you're absolutely right. His sword needs to be broken. Under what circumstances? Yeah, whom does Fingolfin kill? Great question, right? Uh, what is exactly his role? He's got to be fighting. I think, I think he's got to be. But anyway, alright, we'll uh, we'll We'll leave it there. So, thanks everybody for uh, uh, joining us. This is a really fun discussion today. Made lots of good progress, I think, and I look forward to talking about the kinslaying two weeks from today. So that'll be what is that in September, right? September eighth. Um, so I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, next week first. Yeah.
0: This is just like a brutal, brutal series of episodes. To start
1: this season It's off. tough. Yeah, these are these are really. Uh, like, season, it's
0: just like having the red wedding over and over again on Game of
1: Thrones. Season three starts with a bang. It really does. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, and this I will say in advance. I might need to reschedule September eighth. Might actually be on the eighth. We might have to either put that off a week or do it a week sooner. Because or probably put it off a week because uh, I have uh, I think I've got a thing on September 8th I need to check my calendar. But anyway, very soon will be the next episode, so we'll, we'll sort that out. Keep an eye on your email for notification. We won't leave you hanging. We won't. We won't. So thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.